Hey, it's Gory Corey. I'm currently working on a new horror anthology called Welcome Week with Screenager Productions, the minds behind Satan's Servant. We're making a film about the horrors of college, and we're bringing together college-age film students from all over the world to work on it. We're currently fundraising on Indiegogo and would really appreciate your support. Whether it's sharing or donating, anything helps. Thank you so much, and if you'd like to learn more, you can find us on Indiegogo at Welcome Week, or you can visit my blog, GoryCory.com. Thanks! Welcome to Filmstrip. These podcasts are spoiler-filled as we discuss the plots, characters, and themes of the films in review. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17. Welcome to Filmstrip. I'm Jay. And I'm Carmelita. And we're here to talk about Crimes of the Future, starring Viggo Mortensen, Leia Sadu, Scott Speedman, Lee Kornowski, Don McKellar, Welkit Boonway, Tanaya Beatty, Nadia Litz, and Kristen Stewart. Written and directed by David Cronenberg, out in theaters now, 2022, $35 million budget. Took 20 years to finally come to the screen. We'll get into all that, but first off, Carmelita, welcome back to Filmstrip. Great to talk to you again. Hey, Jay. Thank you so much for inviting me back. I had such a good time the last couple of times we spoke, and this is this is exciting. Yeah, so we should just tell people right now, this entire episode exists because you and I both had incredibly strong reactions to the trailer of this when it dropped on Twitter. And then a few DMs later, we realized we're both, we're both going to see this. We're going to do this somehow. It, knowing... I, Knowing I was in for a ride, but not knowing exactly what we're doing. And this is this is different from Filmstrip. We've never done back-to-back in-theater releases in a row in all of our you know 12 years of doing this show. So what a whiplash to go from Top Gun Maverick to this inside of a week. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I was thinking, you know, people throw around that the movie event of the year or the summer mm-hmm. or what have you. And coming off of the last couple years where folks couldn't go to the movie theater and then it slowly started to open up. But, you know, it's been this year is just stacked Mm -hmm. one exciting movie release after another. But definitely once I saw the trailer for Crimes of the Future, it was like, this is my movie event of the year. I've just been the anticipation has been. So insane. <laughs> it's been insane. That is that is awesome. Well, there's another reason I wanted you on here to talk about this with me because I I I again we both had really strong reactions to it. I was like, oh, this is gonna be perfect. This is right in your wheelhouse. I I like some of Cronenberg's stuff. I haven't seen all of it. Um, but I I like what I've seen and I know what to expect when I go into one of his movies. And moreover, the cast, I have seen pieces of these people that have really are three leads in particular i've seen them in a lot of stuff and so i'm like i'm always down to watch them do things so i was like okay this this all looks like exactly the right formula for the anti-summer movie as we'll get into so but first <laughs> off just in case folks haven't had, didn't catch you on our fright night reviews that were you know, spaced apart by a few months and stuff like that i i generally refer to you as like everybody's favorite podcast guest because i think you've been on like 50 shows or something at this point and there's a good reason for that but do tell folks a little bit about yourself and sort of lead that into your background with like cronenberg and why this was like your movie event of the summer oh absolutely yeah i've 
I'm right around 50 episodes as a guest. I haven't, I need to update my spreadsheet because I'm that kind of nerd. It's going to become evident by the end of this episode how much of a nerd I am. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, just a lifelong movie fan and a pop culture junkie. Love horror, love science fiction, big reader, and, you know, podcasting is, it's become this great way to connect with people about these things that we love and to pick each other's brains. And I'm always honored and thrilled when I get asked these podcasts that are doing amazing things, film strip included, and, and talk with other people who also love film. And, you know, Cronenberg, I, I'm still making my way through the complete filmography, but watched a lot of Cronenberg and I love David Cronenberg's filmmaking, especially the films he made in the seventies and eighties, all of his body horror. Yeah. The science fiction elements. I, I love the themes he explores around technology, around the human body and like the human condition. Just the man gets you thinking and there's nothing wrong with putting on a movie just to be entertained and have a good time and kind of shut out the world. I enjoy that too, but there's something that really fires me up about films that get you thinking and films that are rewarded in rewatch. And Cronenberg is great with that. Yeah. You know, we're, we're sitting down here to see, to talk about a film that we saw for the first time in the movie theater today. Yeah. And walking out of the theater, I just immediately was like, God, I can't wait to see this again. Because I just know that with every subsequent viewing, I'm going to get more out of it. I'm going to dig deeper. Because I've found that with Cronenberg's other films that I've experienced. Videodrome is one of my favorites. Crash. Uh, also a big fan of Rabid and Shivers. The Fly. The Fly was my first David Cronenberg film that I saw. And I saw it pretty young. And the more that I dig into his filmography and the more that I rewatch those favorites, the deeper down the rabbit hole I go. And I also find that the meaning and, and the experience continues to grow with me as I'm kind of progressing <laughs> down the road of life. And I think that's one of the really interesting things about this film in particular coming out now being almost a return to the body horror that he was doing in the seventies, eighties and nineties. But he's been, he's been living and working all these years. And so I was really curious to see how his perspective would have shifted or changed. How would this, how would this continue on a lot of those themes that permeate his work? 
and and what changes might I notice? What shifts? What would be the same and what would be different was something I was really curious to see. I think it's neat that you talk about like sort of how he is a thing that you want to re-experience and re-watch his work and stuff. Because I, I put him in the same category as somebody like Kubrick or Nolan non-Batman films and things like that. Like when you watch those, you just get a different flavor out of them every time. There's a little bit of a part of the onion that peels for him. And my first Cronenberg was actually the the Dead Zone, uh, which was mm. he just directed. Like, he, but and people say like, oh yeah, you know, he didn't really write that one or whatever. But he had a lot of influence of the way that got interpreted. And if you go back and watch it now, it's incredible how well that holds up uh, and was a, such a marker of the time and was really way ahead of its time in a lot of ways. But then, of course, I saw the fly and scanners and you know, video drone, all those things. And then I kind of fell out with him. And it wasn't because I just stopped watching his stuff. I saw Crash and I was like, that was a trippy, really not what I expected experience. <laughs> and then I, I just sort of caught up with things because I would hear people talk about them, like Existence and Cosmopolis and stuff like that. And I would just see these. And what I realized is that he had had sort of just started doing stuff where whatever just he got interested in an actor or or something like that and he wanted to do something and then you know he he latched onto Viggo Mortensen with Eastern Promises and History of Violence and when I I think History of Violence was the last thing like I purposely went and saw because I just thought that looks really good and that movie's got kind of a mixed bag with reviews and stuff where way people you know react to it but i happen to think it's brilliant and it's really like david cronenberg doing a small town crime movie like what why would you do that if you're him but you of course you can and yeah i like in his work if i can make the the uh, comparison of it to like philip k dick writings like the more you read philip k dick stories you get more out of them every time and if, especially if you can separate most of the philip k dick filmography and the way that those things were adapted you know, stuff like paycheck is nothing like the, <laughs> the story or anything but you, I, I don't know I feel, I feel like they're that way and in this movie in particular i was sitting there the whole time and again i just saw this this afternoon and i'm like you i'm like i, I got i'm going to see this again because there's no way i got all of it in one pass but i felt like i was like this is like a philip k dick story like i need to read this again because i I know I miss stuff and it'd be fun to sort of unravel. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. His work is, is so, there's just so much to unpack. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I I think sometimes there, there's a critique that you hear sometimes that Cronenberg's work is cold, Mm -hmm. you know, or clinical. And I, I can see why, but I, I like to think of him as cerebral. Like it's very much like in your head and watching it. I I'm experiencing it. And, and I think that's one of the things that's really cool about his work too, especially when he's doing body horror mm-hmm. that you can have these really visceral images, but it's also very, it's also a lot about philosophy and ideas and thinking and I, I love how he's able to bridge those two things, the visceral with everything, you know, about the thought process and thinking and philosophizing. I, he's just a master at that. Oh, he really is. And that's the thing is like he is not someone who the movie is just what it's about, like. It, it, like he definitely has a vision and a metaphor that he's pushing, but he also builds art that 
whatever you find in it, he's good with. Like he, he, I mean, he talks about it and it's, it's in all the press stuff. And I find it interesting that all the actors, particularly Leah to do and, and Kristen Stewart said they would go in between takes and be like, what are we doing? Like they would, they had no idea. Like they didn't get it. And he told him, I was like, I don't care that you get it. He said, I hire people that do good performances and I just, you know, get a performance out of them. And then it gets put together. And, and Kristen Stewart herself said, when we all saw the final cut of it, we're like, Oh, now we get it. But I can imagine what it'd be like working on this. Like some of the, some of the stuff they are asked to do and the dialogue that comes out and, and everything. I'm like, I can imagine what it was like to try to spit that out and go, did I get that? It's like, is that what you wanted? Cause it's so, I mean, it is so trippy. And but I think that's what makes it fun. And and particularly Cronenberg at this point in his, his career, you know, he's done body horror, right. And then he spent a lot of time with psychology, you know, he made a movie about Freud, you know, and I mean, he's yeah. obviously interested in how our minds work and how, that interacts with the world, how our bodies work, how that interacts with the world is sort of the mesh of all those kind of nightmares and stuff like that. And now I think he's just sort of come back to this and I don't know that it's so much come back to what he's good at. I, I kind of, and just to play my hand a little bit here, I feel like he's saying, I'm going to make one last final play statement on what body horror is, whatever y'all want to call that. And boom, here it is. Here's my, my thesis. And I'm like, wow, it's a, it's a heck of one to go out on too. I mean, th- we should say the man is 79 and he's, he's still yes. working. So that's awesome. I was, I was just thinking about that earlier. I was thinking about, you know, something like Videodrome comes out in 1983. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Friend. 1983 is almost 40 years ago. <laughs> that's a long time ago. Yeah, I know. I'm sitting here thinking about that going like, oh man, now I'm feeling even older than I was. You know, Cause you know, really, so- yeah, Videodrome is the work of a 40-year-old man. Right. And The Fly is the work of a 43-year-old man, right? Exactly. Then, yeah. You know, I, not not a youngster, mm-mm. but, you know, he's continued to work and and hone his craft and, and take it in different directions since then. And in almost 40 years now, as a man on the precipice of, of becoming an octogenarian you know, is, is revisiting some of that, some of what we might recognize from that earlier work, but this is his opportunity to come at it from where he is today. And I think that's really exciting. Yeah. And to say something about, I don't even know if he's really even talking about today or future, because the, the way that this movie is said, and we'll get into it, we, we start picking it apart a little bit here is that, He's not predicting a future. He's not telling Mm. anything. It's just like, here's a thing that is happening. And so in that way, it feels very much a little different than, than Philip K. Dick, because Philip K. Dick would give you the sense of sort of how you got to the world you were in. And it was always related to some version of our world or what he thought you know, uh, our society was going to become. And I don't think Cronenberg exists on that plane at all. I think he's on a different planet. You know, I mean, this could, this could be a star Wars movie for all we do because of just the, we don't know where any of this is, you know? And I mean, I'm, I'm looking at him like, I have no idea where any of this was shot. It's gorgeous, but it's also sort of like, oddly dilapidated and really rusted out. So I'm like, this could be Savannah, Georgia. It could be Alameda where you are. I don't know. So I mean, it could be anywhere. So, it, it, but Absolutely. that's the point is it doesn't, it doesn't matter. And that's, what's kind of cool about it. It could be in Charles Band's castle for all we know. And, and I, I think that's, what's neat is that the places aren't as important as sort of the, again, the people. And it, it's something special about a director that can get performers 
who not only can act in a movie and then can act, so maybe they've got some stage or whatever in them, but can put them in a situation where it is a completely foreign place. None of the stuff these people hang out in, it really exists in like any version of the real world that we live in. And, but none of them get like lost in it, which is sort of amazing. That's it's when, you know, you've hired good actors. And so I, but that's Cronenberg because he finds again, interesting performers and just lets them go and do stuff. And so, uh, yeah, I, I'm, I, I didn't know what I expected going into this because I saw that trailer on Twitter once and I was hooked and I watched it again and I said, okay, I'm going in as cold as possible. So I, I didn't watch anything else. I didn't want to know. I didn't read nothing. I was like, I just want to sort of roll in and uh, shout out to, to Chris Cox from one of us. I saw his review pop up for today with his crew. And I said, I'm just going to listen to like the first five minutes to this. Cause I know it'll be spoiler free. And I kind of heard him go and I said, okay, I don't hear any more. I was going to save this until it's over because I can tell he's going to get into stuff. And he, would would be in the same line of conversation we're having today because he's a big Cronenberg fan, and I thought, okay, so what, going in, I I know what we're gonna get. We're gonna get some. It's gonna be weird. There's gonna be some. There's like an operating table thing going on. There's some weird art, and I, Viggo Mortensen is dressed like a ninja or a Jedi. I don't know, one or the other. <laughs> and Kristen Stewart's being weird, which is any day that ends in a while. So okay, and I don't, you know, and and the the Bond lady from Spectre. Sorry, Lisa, dude, I only know you from that. But you know, I I I, I know she's done a lot of the work, but that's really all I've ever seen her in. So I'm like, okay, well, she looks interesting, and everything I had heard was, oh, she's the best thing in the movie. And then you got all these other people who I've never heard of. I probably seen them in something but don't know who any of them are and i'm like okay so what world am i walking into and i literally sit in the theater and i, I just let this thing kind of fly over me and it's a uh, it was an experience to say the least so uh, me and the uh, young couple behind me were the only people there so at my <laughs> friday afternoon matinee because i i could tell this one was not going to draw the crowd and uh, we, we can talk about that as we get into it i guess i should give a plot summary i mean spoilers hot obviously on a movie that's out like right now so if you, yeah. you didn't see it this weekend y'all and you don't want it spoiled, hit pause, keep us in your downloads, come back later. Or Save if you want us to Yeah, or if you want us to try to explain it to you, I don't know that I'm gonna be able to do that either. Because I'll tell you now, I I can tell you in the plot summary what happens in this movie. I don't think that's what the movie's all about, though. And so we'll we'll get into all of that. We'll get I'm, into I'm really, it, my friend. Yeah, yeah. I'm curious to hear what you've got to say about it, too, because I, I don't think that I'm the only interpretation of it. And I don't think there is just one. So Viggo Mortensen plays Saul Tenser, and he and his artistic partner, Caprice, played by Leia Sidhu, who was once a surgeon, are world-renowned performance artists where they remove new organs that Saul's body grows in front of a live audience. Uh, he didn't grow them in front of a live audience. He grows them, and then they remove them. So they aren't the only ones that do this, but it's clear that there's something different about how Saul grows these organs and how Caprice and he handled the situation with artistic delicacy. And this attracts the attention of lots of folks, but specifically of the National Organ Registry run by the bureaucrat Whippet, uh, who is really interested in trying to get Saul into a usher in a new appreciation of human evolution and participate in something he calls an inner beauty contest. Uh, but it's whipped, it's timid and awkward assistant, a woman called Timlin played by Kristen Stewart, um, who becomes absolutely fascinated by the duo, especially with saw. And after a performance declares that surgery is the new sex, uh, surrounding all of this is a plot about a man named Lang, who along with a large group of his followers worldwide manufacture a totally synthetic food made out of plastic in the form of purple candy bars. It looks like, which, 
which they can all digest because they've all successfully altered their digestive structure via surgery. Lang believed his son, Brecken, was the first human born with the natural ability to digest these plastics. But Brecken was murdered by his mother, who considered him an abomination. Lang wants Saul and Caprice to use their fancy surgery table, which was originally manufactured to perform autopsies, to perform a live autopsy of his son's corpse, which would reveal this next evolution in the human species to the world. However, the chair's support team from a life formware, a pair of biomechanics, Burst and Danny, keep close watch on all this, as does police detective Cope, who leads the new vice team. Caprice struggles with her devotion to the purity of the art she and Saul perform while being so drawn to another performer um, who cuts her face as part of an act that Caprice even modifies her own face. Caprice and Saul eventually decide to go forward with the autopsy, but when they open the boy up, it's all tattooed organs like the one Saul grows inside. Lang distraught thinks his ex-wife set him up to try to defaming, but um, he doesn't even really know what's going on because he's killed by the biomechanics and a couple of drills. Uh, turns out Detective Cope was working with Timlin all along, who replaced the boy's advanced digestive system with the branded organs to discredit Lang and his movement, thinking that the world was just not ready for it. Saul, though, thinks they've made a murder out of Lang and even starts to believe a little bit in his theories on human evolution himself. He believes to the point that he gives up the struggle to eat regular food and tries the plastic bars that Lang produces. And he looks into Caprice's camera and sheds a tear as credits roll. And that's what happens in the movie. If you followed that, congratulations. <laughs> now I'm going to ask Carmelita to tell me what the hell is all that about. <laughs> that was a beautiful summary, Jay. Well done. Thank you. That was completely from what I could remember having. I watched this movie and I got out of it right before 5 p.m. Eastern. And I've spent the last it's it's just to pull the curtain back. We were recording this at 10 o'clock at night. I've spent the last five hours wondering, <laughs> what was that? I ran three miles this evening and the whole time was going. So how am I going to talk about this? And I more or less had it in my head then and then jotted it down when I got home. So <laughs> thank you very much. But yeah, there's lot, lots to unpack in this. And I think the, the place to start is the world of the movie and just talk about what happens in the movie that we could get into you know, maybe what it all means as we go. But I'm I'm struck immediately by the opening of the world because when you see the trailer to this, it all looks so dark and gritty and you know, they're going to be cutting on people and you expect to be like, Oh, this is going to be extremely gross. But we open with this beautiful ocean scene and this little boy digging in the ocean, you know, but then his, and we find out it's his mother, but you presume his mother just really going like very um, hard at him about like, I don't eat anything you find there. I don't want to hear about it. I don't want to know. And I'm like, what's going on? And only a minute or two later to see this kid start munching on a plastic trash can. And I, I'm like, what, what has happened? What movie am I in? Because that all happens. She smothers him. And then we go to performance art. And I'm like, was that a trailer for something that I missed? I had no idea that was going on. Tell me I wasn't the only one that was lost at that. No, it's this film from the jump it becomes very clear. It is not going to hold your hand. Mm -mm. You are dropped right in the middle of this world of a story that's already in progress. And you just have to observe so that you can catch up, you know? And so, yeah, it's like this little boy is, is digging on, on the shore and you don't see much. There's some kind of an industrial looking structure that's out in the water. And, 
and the building, the home or apartment that this woman is calling to him from, turns out is his mother, is kind of run down looking. All the paint's peeling off of it. Yeah, paint peeling plaster is chipped. It's dirty. It's very like bare bones. And you have no idea like where is this? What country? Nothing. Know nothing about where this is or what time this is. All of the clothing, right from the jump from this first scene, but all throughout, all of the clothing is very simple with the exception of some of the performance artists' costumes, a lot of the clothing is just very simple, clean lines, neutral colors. A lot of the buildings look run down, but there's nothing about the architecture that points to a particular era. Mm-mm. Some of it looks kind of 70s, like the, almost like that brutalist 70s, 60s kind of vibe to it. A lot of like rectangular shapes square shapes i was thinking that because i've worked on college campuses for 23 years now and all of them have that one or two buildings that were built in the 70s that don't match all the faux victorian (laughs) you know buildings that are the rest of them it's like oh you know when that one was built but you know it's so it is very it looks like the world is crumbling but we also don't see like you would in a lot of post-apocalyptic films you know, we're not seeing bread lines. We're not seeing the the quintessential fire in a in a dumpster right. <laughs> or like in a trash yeah. can, people warming their hand, you know. So it doesn't look like the world has completely fallen apart. It's it's really interesting. And it's right away, it's like I'm I'm trying to take in all of the little details to try and like orient myself. But the film doesn't care about giving you an answer to what all those little details mean. It's like, just go with the story and, and, and you kind of, and you just do, and it becomes very immersive feeling. Like I stopped thinking about, I wonder where this is, or I wonder when this is doesn't even Mm -hmm. matter. No, it doesn't. The the thing that struck me and it it didn't hit me until after, after I saw the movie and again, I'm trying to process sort of all this stuff and you sort of learn through dialogue throughout it that people have evolved to a point where like common germs and things, if they exist, they no longer bother us and everything like nobody sneezes. There's no masking. There's no social distancing. There's also an incredible lack of lots of people around. So you kind of wonder if like a, huge chunk of the population got wiped out by something somewhere along the way, but clearly we've survived and we've moved on, but everything is really dirty and nobody seems to care. But what you realize is like, they don't have to care anymore. And I thought it was an interesting take on like, if you, if it didn't matter that you didn't wash your hair, you didn't wash your hands anymore. You didn't clean up anything anymore because it didn't matter whether you did or not. Eventually you would just stop doing it. Like you, everybody says like, no, I wouldn't, but yeah, you would, you drop formalities when you don't have to do them anymore. And for no better uh, example than this, none of the college students I see nowadays know how to write in cursive because they weren't taught how to do it Oh yeah, anymore. But like, it was a major part of, you know, school growing up when I was, and now we just don't do that anymore. Now we teach them how to program in C++, you know, which I still don't know how to do. So it's, it's just a different world. So you just see the evolution happening. And I, I, 
it didn't hit me watching it as I was watching it, but thinking about it afterward, I was like, oh, what an interesting, subtle visual way to tell that and then drop that line or two later on. And then you just see it reinforced by the way, like, no, there's, there's almost no water. Nobody drinks anything this whole time. It's like, what, what are we as people anymore? It's very different. What they do drink is this sort of sparkling fizzy stuff. You know, it's like, I don't know. Ginger ale survived the cola wars, I guess. But I mean, (laughs) really it it was, it's interesting to see, but uh, yeah, all that opening is great because you've got that turned over cruise ship and that other like industrial thing that looks like maybe like a an oil platform or something that's just turned over in the ocean but this kid's just playing by the beach like it's no big deal and the water is super clean you know and he's brushing his teeth but he's not using any water there's nothing on the toothbrush and then he eats that that uh wastebasket or whatever sitting in the in the floor and i'm i i'm just taken aback by it and then you i realized what was about to happen though because again his mother's holding a pillow and i've seen lifetime movies so i know it's about to go down and (laughs) i'm like "Uh uh-oh yes and i mean she she's i mean it and it lingers like the way she smothers him and i was sort of surprised first 10 minutes of the movie right yeah yeah this i mean i'm (laughs) again i thought did I miss a trailer for something else? I haven't moved, but what, where am I? Cause I didn't think this was part of all of it. And to tie it all back in, it's Brecken. It's his mother. Um, uh, as part of Juna is her name. And the way all that plays in and gets weaved back in the story is neat, but to jump us straight from that to Saul and Caprice and, and a performance is, is jarring. And it's like you said, this movie is not going to hold your hand. It, and it, it doesn't have to, though, is the other thing. And that's when I realized about maybe, I don't know, 20, 30 minutes into it, I was like, I need to just let this play out and stop trying to think about this at the time because I don't think Cronenberg wants me to overthink this at this point. He wants me to absorb it and then come back around to it again because this is definitely a movie that you need another shot at you know, to, to get all of it. But just when I'm picking up those first 10 minutes and then when we get to this performance bit, I was almost blown away by, by all of it. And... We, you know, when we go to the performance, Carmelita, like they've got the old cathode ray TVs, you know, and it's black and white and, but people are just kind of standing around, but they've got like futuristic cameras, you know, mixed in with like old eight millimeter ones. And somebody's got a, a ring camera and all this, and there's all this body is reality, you know, words all over the, the, the wall. But you know, being an old graphic design guy, I'm like, they picked the most boring font ever to do that with. <laughs> And I was like, well, that's not, that's not arbitrary. There's a reason for that. And it's, but you talked about the sterility that, that Cronenberg can have some, I think he's using that as part of the device here is that it may look dirty to us, but to these people, this is every day. This is a sterile world now because they're sterile to all of it. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, you know, it's when we get to that, that first performance and people are saying, you know, if there's someone here listening who is listening to this first and hasn't seen it, should maybe yeah. talk about what the performance entails. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, so this is really cool. And there's actually, God, this is what I love about Cronenberg. And it also knowing that you and I were going to sit down in just a few hours to talk about it. I was like, Carmelita, stop thinking about outside things and watch the movie. Because I, I couldn't help but think about some real life performance artists who, mm-hmm. who do what a lot of people would consider extreme performance art. That it's just, is so much in line with what Cronenberg is depicting here. And I don't know 
where he drew his influences from because I haven't been reading anything about like yourself. I wanted to go into this mm -hmm. cold, but I immediately yeah. it called to mind um, some performance artists like uh, Bob Flanagan or Ron Athey who do performance art that very much involves their body and the modification of their body and there's blood and there's pain and Cronenberg kind of lays it all out here. And, and what's interesting too, what makes it really interesting visually is that you have these, these devices, this technology that's used in the performance that looks super reminded me a lot of existence. Uh, yeah. Very, like, I got biological, this whole biotech looking stuff. HR Giger alien yeah. stuff. Very yeah. much so. Yeah. But it's, but what they're actually doing, performing a surgery in front of an audience. And, and, and here's, here's a detail I don't think we've mentioned previously another one of these evolutions that humanity has is in the throes of is that most people no longer feel pain it's mentioned. right but Saul does he's one of those those few <laughs> those few people who mm -hmm. still experiences physical pain uh, and and so that makes the performances all the more interesting because he is he is the subject that the surgery is happening to and, and he's the one that feels pain so it's I, well, the performance I wanted to ask really you about that though because he does feel the pain you're right but his face and Vigo Mortensen's actions are it's also a mix of pleasure as well yes and I got this whole like if you go back to the book, the novella that Clive Barker's Hellraiser is really based on, I was like somewhere Clive Barker's in a corner, probably, <laughs> you know, hitting himself with a whip going, yes, this is my kind of movie. I mean, like this is, this is Hellraiser come to life. I mean, it really is. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I got a lot is, of that. This is a real thing. Yeah. BDSM <laughs> um, as part of performance art is a real thing. Yeah, very much that line between what's painful and pleasurable is a very real thing that I think all people on some level have experienced, but some people experience it and seek it out in this next level. Right. So because it's not just a happen. physical right. sensation. It's a psychological one too. Yeah. There's like an entire psychological underpinning to it. I feel like we're getting like way too deep here, man. But yeah, you know, but really, I mean, like <laughs> yeah, that's, that's to, true. You have you to pull to, me back because yeah. I, Cronenberg makes me go to those places. No, but I'm the same way. I'm, I'm sitting here <laughs> you know, nerding out about it too. Cause I'm having this whole thought in my head. I'm like, Oh, we're playing with the pain and pleasure principles. And I got, I mean, my, I, my mind ran this whole rabbit again when I'm running today. And I'm like, if you lived in a society where you basically couldn't feel pain anymore, what would you know was pleasurable anymore? Because if all you ever felt was pleasure, it wouldn't be pleasurable anymore. Right. And I mean, or, yeah, and we, you know, they talk a lot about, there's all kinds of different addictions and things like that, but like pleasure addiction can get to a point where you have to go so extreme to feel anything. Then you start getting into dangerous territory and there's, you know, there's lots of boundaries that just you oh, don't sure. need to cross. Yeah, right. And the discourse around pornography, especially now exactly. with the internet. Right. Kind of, right. you have to keep upping the ante. You have to increase the stimulus mm -hmm. 
to get the same sensation. Right, right. It's like you got to take yeah. a bigger hit of the drug every time. Right. And and but I thought, well, what if they, you know, the the idea of pain and and Saul has and Mortensen does a great job delivering those lines where he talks about like pain's good, like it teaches us things. It's there for us, you know, because nobody else can really understand it the way he can. And he's exactly right. If there's no negative consequence, how do you know when to ever stop? You know, and the answer is. People don't. There are people in his audience that are like cutting on each other's legs and they're like acting out as if they are getting incredible pleasure from that. I'm trying to say that as lightly as possible. <laughs> but I mean, really, we're talking to people where people are cutting each other up. I mean, come on. But I mean, really, I mean, they're getting off on it. And it's it's kind of – but not in like a, you know, gross, uh, you know uh, – dudes on the you know uh tnn channel or some nonsense you know it's, it's not anything you know on the shady side of the internet necessarily it's more of like this that's like a deeply personal thing that everybody's just experiencing while they're doing this and that's what makes these people so uh, you know renowned because we see the after party of their performance and it's like a hollywood after party everybody's just having a great time or actually what it reminded me of is if you've ever seen really intense plays and then mm. you go to the cast party after everybody's just kind of cool and hanging out. And I'm like, do we forget these people were clawing each other's eyes out like 10 <laughs> minutes ago? Cause I mean, but really, I mean, that's, but that's yeah. what the audience is doing. And it's such a neat thing to watch and see. And I got to say the visuals of this, um, are are pretty stunning and Cronenberg has his own thing but Douglas Koch's cinematographer does an incredible job with all of the uh, clearly all of the practical mix with the the computer effects and stuff that they're doing and that's a hard thing to to layer together as as we've seen so many times but it's the thing was though, is I expected to be like, Oh, I'm gonna have to turn away from the screen. Like also, and I never did. And true story. I come back home, my wife's uh, here and she's on the couch and she's watching one of these shows on TLC about somebody going to like extreme, you know, weight loss stuff. And they show this person and I like turn away from the screen and I laugh at myself. Cause I'm like, <laughs> and she's like, what? And I said, I just watched a movie where people cut each other open in front of each other. And this is too much for me. <laughs> you know, like that was okay. No, but, this is I think this is this is important about this film. And I'm glad it's not just me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm, I'm not the only I'm not the only weirdo. I think that the way that it's shot, the way that it's lit, the way that it's edited, the way that the effects are done, the performances, the music, it all comes together and there's it doesn't it doesn't feel judgmental in those scenes where people are cutting each other. It doesn't, it, do, yeah. it doesn't feel like it's trying to give us a, a particular point of view. Like this is gross or this is sexy. Mm -hmm. It's almost pulled back a little bit just to like, just take it in, come up mm -hmm. with your own conclusions. And, yeah. and the way that it's, I feel like the way that everything is presented Yes, like someone sitting in an apparatus, a chair or a bed that looks like a creature with tentacles, but something about it is very almost delicate. Mm -hmm. And nothing looks like there's some parts where you get like little squishy, some squishiness, but 
I don't know. It's not, it's not as gross or gory as, as you might think. No, it's not, it's not as, it's not as gory as like video drone or the fly or even, and this is not a carnivore movie, but like the thing, you know, mm-hmm. and all that stuff. Like I didn't have the visceral reaction to it because it felt so in one way, like clinical, but also incredibly artistic. And I lay a lot yeah. of that on Howard Shore's plate because the score underlying this is this like romantic drama period score it's mixed gorgeous. with like really soft, sensual EDM, you know? And I'm like, yeah. this is really like smart music to set a mood. It's very moody, it but is. it's, it, it's, I think you've nailed it in the sense, Carmelita, that it's, it's not there to titillate us or freak us out more than it. Cause the trailer did that. Cause it's cut so quick, but this is so slow and methodical that you're just going, how is, how does that work? Like you're, you're kind of lost in, I'm, I was yeah. lost in the mechanics of all of it. And I think that's what Cronenberg is trying to say about th- that society in the movie is that they're so desensitized to the point that they, they only feel one side of sensation anyway, for the most part, that this is how you would react to that. Or at least this is how he thinks people would react in that type of situation. And it's, I don't know. It's it, again, I could spend three hours talking about just that opening surgery scene and how they wake Saul up out of his bed. That's got like, it's got tentacles on him, but he can't get comfortable and all this stuff. And they have to get the, the nameless faithless tech company to come in and life form where to come, you know, download new software to it. I love, I love the way that all that is sort of, put together and this world gets built for us again without holding our hands you know and and keeping us engaged in it it's really neat um i wanted to ask you what you made out of vigo morton's performance where he clearly is affecting his voice like he's got a kind of a rasp and he's always seems like he's kind of halfway choking and so like he's the only person in the movie that we see do that and yeah it makes him incredibly different than everything else well you know it's and I think it's it's genius the way the way that as the story unfolds and we find out more about his life and his condition and how he feels about it. As we get to know him more, it's like the performance just makes so it just it's so spot on and conveying a lot without giving a ton of exposition, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that rat, he talks about this feeling of his, like his throat is closing, yeah. like he can't open wide enough to eat. And we know that he's, he's been growing these organs for some time. And every time he grows a new one, they remove it. And they happen to do that removal as part of their, performance as an art piece but like they would have to they would probably have to come out anyway it's kind of how they're they talk yeah, it's about they it. play it yeah they happen to use they use his condition as part of their their performance art but he would be growing these things anyway. And there's kind of this talk about he, he, there's talk about is he willing it to happen? Is it something that just happens to him? And over the course of the film, you can, I started to get the sense this is a man who's fighting what he is, who he is, this mm-hmm. 
this transformation within himself that he doesn't fully understand. And he's, he's, I think for anyone who watches his, his performances seems like he's just laying it all bare and, and that, you know, he's really given himself over to this, this transformation that happens within his body and he's, he's harnessing it for the art, but there is a level of like self-denial and it isn't until we get to the end that he actually stops fighting what's happening to him. Yeah. What he's becoming and where yeah. he's, he's evolving. Yeah. It's it's, really it is, it is a, a man fighting his own evolution, yeah. but still also going along with it too. And that's a good segue into talking about Leia Sadu and Caprice because Again, I really only know her from you know, the Spectre movie I've seen her in. I did look up her filmography and I see the the stuff, stuff she's been in. She was amazing to me in yeah. this role. Like, because where Saul can be kind of cold and almost kind of wry and funny. Like he has there's a lot of humor in Vigo Mortensen's thing that he's doing in this movie. She is always on the verge of like just incredible emotional not, not outburst but just like her eyes are just gonna well up and just turn it all loose she's got such passion in her face and reminded me a lot of the way marion cotillard played uh uh dom's wife in in uh inception for for mm. nolan she said you know because mm-hmm. and and we really not to diverge into that too much but, you know that's his memory of her or whatever and we know that that was a damaged person who c- couldn't separate reality from fiction anymore but she always was sort of on that verge of just you know, fully giving into her emotional side of it so she's a complete opposite to Saul where he is very clinical and very cold. And she is so, I mean, even the way they dress her and her hair is bright red and she's, you know, she's very vibrant and lively and, you know, she's, uh, I don't know. I, I got this whole, just like radiation off of her the whole time. And I, I was just captivated with her performance, everything she was doing. I just ate it up. No, she was great. Her performance was great. She, a lot of that body language and, and all the acting she's doing with her facial expressions and glances. It's, it's an incredible performance. And the character is very interesting because mm-hmm. you have, you have someone who was a surgeon, a healer yeah, who, who becomes involved with, a person who has, I mean, in a, the way they, I think kind of the way it's presented at first is, is almost like he has like a chronic illness Mm -hmm. that evolution. He's not thinking of it as evolution at that point. It's like, I'm in pain. I grow these organs. We have to remove them. I need a special bed so that I can sleep because I can't sleep because of the pain. Like, and she, ca- and she takes care of him. Yeah. And then she, and then they have also now turned that caretaking into part of their art form. It's well, when she says really when, when she's introducing herself to, to Timlin or everybody is that, he brought things out of me. I didn't know I could do. And you think like, Oh, they have this romantic relationship, but then you realize like, no, there's something else going on here too. Like, it's like, 
she psychologically connected to him too for this. He needs someone to cut this stuff out of him and explain all of it while he allows it to happen. And I'm, I'm his, his voice, his avatar to the world, you know? And I mean, I, I don't know. I just, I just really ate up like the whole thing she was trying to say, you know? And again, I, I've, I've got a whole like theory as to what this is supposed to be, but I, I love the way she presents all of that to us and it's because it's where he's so dispassionate she's so passionate about everything but not to the point of like being hysterical and that's what's neat is she's still so very controlled but she also has her own set of desires and like unchecked unbridled want and stuff because we see her with the woman that cuts her face up later and you know, she puts little ridges on her on her forehead and you know she she has strong reactions to lots of things throughout this and i wanted to ask you too because there's that scene later on where like she's laying in the in the surgery bed thing and he's running the the two scalpels and like he accidentally cuts her and she she winces but then she's just like uh, elated look on her face. I'm like, can she feel just a little bit of pain or was, th- was she also just on that total pleasure principle there? Yeah. I mean, that's a great question. How would she experience the sensation of being cut? And he seems surprised. Mm-hmm. Uh, Saul seems surprised that she tells him to continue. So it's not just us being mm-hmm. curious about, okay, well, how is she experience? What does she experience in the chair? Because it's, it's, it's not going to be the same experience that the Saul character has. Right. And he seems just as surprised as we are that she's, she wants him to continue. Yeah. It's and he really also says like, maybe we should do this sometime. Maybe you should be in the chair and I'll do all the, the stuff. And she's like, no, this should just be us. And what that turns into is they just kind of intertwine around each other and they all, they have like these little dripping cuts where they just sort of cut each other up. And I'm like, I mean, there's, I mean, you can go lots of places with this girl, but I'm like, I guess you just both lean into your kink together and then you just keep that one at home. Like, I, yeah. I don't know. I mean, really, I was like, yeah, yeah I guess I mean, there's some well, stuff though. That's just yours. You know, this, I mean, then this is the thing. Mm-hmm. Anyone who, who explores these things publicly, like in an art performance mm-hmm. that, that, includes sexuality or kink or or anything like that mm-hmm. there's what happens in that public space that you're sharing but of course there has to be the part that's that's an intimacy between people that isn't part of performance right and they include that in this film showing us and it's interesting because you they don't, I don't recall, and again, we've only seen this the one time. I don't recall if they said how long they had been together. No, I, I didn't catch that either, but she just but sense that it had been long that enough. It's been a while. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it, it's really cool. You, we get the sense that this is an established relationship or partnership between mm-hmm. these two people who, who live and create art together. And then we get this scene where they're both experiencing something new together and their choice to, well, let's just like, we're not going to put that in the show. Yeah. That's, this is just ours. Like, yeah, it's it's, a cool moment. 
Yeah, it is. It's a very cool, intimate moment behind what we think we've seen it all. And no, we haven't. And that's, I think that's what that is there to hit home for us. Cause yeah. you've got, they're the centerpiece when you've got all these other groups around them and the things that are, that are happening that we could talk about. I think we, we got to talk about the government bureaucrats in this, yes. the national order registry. I, I don't know who Don McKellar is, but he played <laughs> such a perfect, like government, uh, yes, yeah, like someone who's just so like caught up in the uh, all the red tape that comes with establishing something. It's so funny too because I think Cronenberg is saying something about sort of the fecklessness of of where he sees long term government going. Is that you think of a federal government building like they're pretty you know elaborate. There's a lot of people there, so like, it's two people in a dingy office with a couple of filing cabinets. <laughs> you know, and, and like they've got old three ring binders and I I just got a kick out of watching him sort of just sh- shimp around all this stuff you know and he's like I'm endangering my entire career by being at this performance yet he's here and I'm like who cares man like I don't think people know who you are and that that's what's funny though is he's someone who clearly takes what he does so seriously but no one else does. And that's what makes him so interesting. And I, I don't know. I got, I got a whole like comedy act out of him and his whole like inner beauty contest and all that stuff. Like that was, yes, it was hilarious to me. Yeah, there is, there is humor in this film. And, and a lot of it centers around those two and the biomechanics also. Yeah. Kind of interject some of the, the these moments of, of humor and and it's really interesting watching <laughs> Whippet and, and Tamlin like they're both you get that sense of they're both a little high strung mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> and you can tell like they 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 work this job in this office and it seems very boring very conventional. They're basically registrars. Yeah. And archivists. Yeah. It's a very, it's a very like going through the motions kind of job. And they're both very attracted to these, these body performances, these, these surgical performances. And, and the way that they both, interact with with song caprice is really it's funny and it's also like the whole time i'm I'm just thinking that there's more to these two right like there's more I, I to this timlin in particular right? and <laughs> yeah. as we revealed like she's a double uh, there's a lot of double agency in this movie Saul yeah. himself is really a triple agent but she is the double agent for the cops. And that's what makes her performance so interesting because Christian Stewart is making choices in this movie. Like yeah. I'm going to be nervous and quiet and kind of, you know, do my awkward thing that I've just done my whole career. Cause it's what I do. And I, I love the fact that she took all her twilight money, her and Robert Pattinson both took all their twilight money to do like the most random weirdest shit that they could come up with for years. I'm, I'm here for it. Like they should oh, do yeah. that. Like I think, I think it's because they're both incredible performers. And if that's all you know them from is that, that series, you, you really are missing it. Cause they, I think everybody has now come on the Pattinson train, particularly after the Batman now, but even her, I mean, she, you know, she did the, the Spencer movie, the Diana, the mm. 
Diana movie. I haven't she's, seen that she's one a, yet. She's actually amazing in that. Like when they, when they said they were doing that, I'm like, wow, okay, I don't, I don't know about that. And then I watched it. I was like, oh, oh, she's actually really good in this. And and I, she's got a a thing, but she clearly made choices as a performer that like I'm just going to be strange and different and i'm just gonna lean into that i'm gonna talk in this quiet little whisper the whole time and i loved it because you just make kind of hang on every word and she's third build in this and she's in maybe 10 minutes of this movie i mean she really just gets peppered in and it's perfect though and i i I loved her whole thing and particularly her reaction after that performance she comes up to Saul and she does that whole sex is the new surgery right because i wanted you to cut on my face too and it's like the fangirl has just gone nuts, yes. you know. I mean, yes, but, it, but she's it's got this fangirl groupie quality about her. Yes, yes. And it's it's in the way she, you know, she's kind of talking a mile a minute almost. Mm-hmm. It's this like excited, like her heart rates up. Mm-hmm. She's aroused very much by what she's seeing. And wants to participate. She doesn't just want to watch. Yeah. She wants to be in it. Yeah. yeah. Which very much reminded me of like Videodrome. Mm-hmm. Debbie Harry's character in, in Videodrome. Some similar themes here. Of course, the Kristen Stewart character here, Tamlin is, she's not the sultry femme fatale. Mm-mm. She's, she's the kind of mousy bureaucrat. She is, but, but there's two scenes when she goes to those, she goes to those performances. She's in her bureaucrat clothes, but she pulls her hair back and she does this thing with her makeup. It's like, she, she's like put on the, you know, the Ritz for the evening. You're like, Oh, Oh. And what, what I realized, I think what I got out of that currently is that we don't ever see the real Timlin at all, that she is so subversive. That she is like, hmm, so my way into this, because I'll really work for the cops, is my way into this is I have to be this mousy, put-upon, quiet person that nobody pays attention to. Because then I can I can do the Dewey and, scre- and, and scream and I can get myself in any situation. Because that's what she does. And she yeah. she plays that. And, I, and to, when the reveal is that – there's just a look on her face. And I don't even – it looks like it was probably something they just grabbed and stuck – in there or whatever. Cause I don't know that she knew what to do at that moment when they revealed to us that she was the one that changed out the boys organs in the end of it. And you go back and you think about the way she's staring at that performance. Yeah. It's like, she knows, like she knows what's going to happen. And that, I mean, and it's like, she's getting off on the fact that like, I know something nobody in this room does. And it's, it's neat to watch her power trip on that. Yeah. And probably her best scene though, is when she's with Vigo Mortensen and she's, She's talking to him about, do you think a digestive system could be created that could, you know, deal with plastics and all that stuff? And then she starts to make out with him or whatever. And he has to like go, I'm not really good at the old sex anymore or whatever. And she's like, oh, she sort of stops herself for a minute. Like you see like, oh, I think that's the one of the moments where we saw the real Timlin kind of come out for a second because she clearly is attracted to him. And you know, he's not like he's just going to batter off, but he also is like, hold on a minute. I, I also can't breathe really well. I mean, that's, yeah. Yeah, he does have the physical limitations and I don't know. Again, I, uh, she's not in the movie that much, but Kristen Stewart is, is such a neat juxtaposed performance from the other females in this movie, because you have the mother who's so <laughs> detached from all of it. Juna is so like, I'm glad I killed that sorry creature of my, you know, you call that a son. You know, all that. She's so, just you, you want to hate her but when you hear her story you're like oh and then you have the two 
oddly playful biomechanics we'll get into. And then you have Caprice who's so like passionate, you know, it's, she's more the femme fatale than Kristen Stewart. It's just neat to watch all that balance together. No, most definitely. Yeah. I, I, I definitely, in my future rewatches of which I predict there will be many, Mm -hmm. she's one to watch very closely in, you know, my next watch or two for all of the little nuances to what she's doing. Cause there's a lot (laughs) we, you know, a lot you pick up Mm -hmm. just even in this first viewing, but I just know. And as we're talking about it, it gets me more thinking about it. Yeah. She's one to watch on rewatches. Right. Cause I mean, she's just doing so many things and we haven't talked about Scott Speedman yet and his, his, uh, the man Lang, the father mm. of the boy that we meet him early on because the, the mother gets a phone call after she smothered the kid and she says, she could tell him he can come get the corpse of that thing. He called his son that he created he wants it but i'm not going to be here you know at this address and sure enough he shows up and there's the boy and he's distraught and you're like of course he would be right but you find out why later and i i just i don't know i really thought and i've seen scott speedman in a lot of tv and stuff so to see him play this role i'm like well i mean it is this great casting but i really was curious at the way he sort of slowly revealed his larger plan and all this and the the way he explained like the plastics and the ingesting of the plastics and things and he's really the only character that does like grand exposition like that through the whole movie yeah yeah and and he's he's a character who has a cause Mm -hmm. and belief right and so his character, like his his ex-wife is the mother of his child. She's very like aggressive, angry. Like this is a woman who is angry mm-hmm. about her life, about her ex, about what her son had become as what she believed as a result of what her husband's up to with this grand plan to basically he wants to push human evolution. Yeah. A process that as we find out is already happening, but not fast enough to uh, our, (laughs) the destruction (laughs) of, of our ecosystem outstrips how quickly we're evolving. We're not evolving fast enough to keep up with all of the change that we've created on on earth. And so he, he's trying to, he's trying to rush it. He wants to skip some steps. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And he's got all these followers that you find that did too. They all surgically altered themselves. So again, this surgery is this just part of life because they can't feel any pain. Right. So, well, let's build like, an artificial digestive system that can handle all this plastic. Cause that's what we have tons of anyway. We would shoving it in the world anyway. Oh, so let's yeah. create kids that can actually handle it instead of killing them with it. And he's the only one that really kind of reveals like a little bit about what happened to the world. You know, yeah. is it's, it's a little bit like, 
climate change and pollution coupled with like mass war and germ extinction and all this stuff. Like it's like everybody that lived through that is now here and has grown up and that's why the world's a little sparse, but it's also you don't really worry about anything anymore because nothing can really harm you. But Saul seems to be the only organism that evolves to an extent that he could probably handle this. But like we said, he's fighting it, right? Well, right. We, we see him eating that little purple bar and he lays it down and some other guy just grabs a copy of it. We find out it was another undercover cop later on and who just violently dies when he eats it because it's poison. It's literally poison to him and it kills him immediately. And he talks about the way he describes how his boy was like the Jesus Christ second coming, you know, the newest hope, right. For all of us. And so he's always dead, but his autopsy can reveal that to the world. When he's telling Caprice and, and uh, Saul this, I mean, I love how Saul says like, Oh, so let me get this. You cut off your little finger and now all your kids don't have a little finger. Is that what you want me to believe? And it, it does make you go like, yeah, would that even work? But it did, but it didn't, you know, is but, it, and but that's maybe the thing. it didn't. Right. Because See, we find the movie out doesn't that, tell you. Yeah. We find out that Saul has also developed. Mm-hmm. We have reason to believe that Saul is also developing that ability. Yeah, let's talk about the chair he eats out of. It's like this. It's like one of the art pieces from Beetlejuice come to life. The one that traps Catherine O'Hare on the wall yeah. one time and sort of, sort of her <laughs> chair. It's sort of, but it's supposed to be like it, it's this. I think it's this commentary of technology to get into the metaphor for a second about like it'll just move you around to where you don't even have to chew anymore. It'll just do it for you and it'll make digestion so easy. And you see one guy using it and it works, you know, for him. But for Saul, he's just never comfortable. Like he has to pause it all the time. He's choking. He's constantly rubbing his throat, trying to get the food down, you know, and he's, and he's eating like mashed peas and carrots while Caprice is over there eating like bacon and eggs, you know? And it's like, oh man, you gotta feel bad for this dude now. (laughs) Like it's not bad for you, but that's all I ever ate. Yeesh, I don't know if I can handle that. So it's, uh, I mean, but it is neat to watch that. And then you have this Lane guy talking about like, look what we've done to ourselves. So if we're going to do that, we might as well create a society. We do that. Well, I did. So let me show you how it works. And, you know, I, I think what he's trying to do is to get people to start procreating again, because there are no other kids in this at all. Yeah, It's the only kid we see. Right. And you're like, so have we just stopped like creating ourselves at this point? And, you know, and I mean, cause you get the sense, at least in this place, no one had in a good while is everybody in this movie is at least 30 or more, you know, right. maybe, maybe you could, you could say Kristen Stewart's in her twenties, maybe, or some of the younger, you know, folks, I think one of the techs is probably in her twenties. The other one's maybe 35, 40 or whatever, but even they like they it kind of plays off like they are a couple. So they're a same sex couple. So they're not able to procreate in, in the form. And so you don't know what, like how that works. Right. And, and it's almost like we've forgotten how to do that. Like we haven't forgotten what sex is. We just forgotten like how to have sex to create life. Cause we just hadn't done it. And it's like, what a trippy thing to like have in a movie yeah. about people having surgery and plastics, man. Like, this what's going is one on? of my favorite things that Cronenberg has explored across various films that intersection between how humans create the technology mm-hmm. 
to affect change in their lives, in the world. And that technology also changes humanity. Mm -hmm. Like we, we build these machines, we use these tools, we have these computers, I have all this technology that we use to like harness the power of nature and to, you know, live longer and do all these things and create, you know, and to fight wars and all of the various ways that we use the technology we create. But it also changes us. Mm-hmm. And in Cronenberg's work, it's oftentimes like it's like it's physically changing our bodies, the technology that we that we've created. And that yeah. is so ubiquitous. Yeah. I mean, they call them, they have a syndrome now, like cell phone neck, they talk about that you get from yeah. people just bending down all the time. Like you have to straighten yeah. yourself up, right? And it's the same kind of idea here. Yeah. Well, and you mentioned cursive earlier. And I mm-hmm. I think this came up. I had a chance to talk about Videodrome on Schlock and Awe. Shout out to Lindsay Wilkins. Absolutely. Uh, and we were talking about the writing callus. Mm-hmm. When we used to use the tool, a pencil, a writing utensil, pen or pencil, we'd get a writing callus. And I used to have a huge writing callus. And actually, when I look at my right hand, I'm right-handed. The finger that had the callus is kind of curved where I can Mm -hmm. see where the finger itself is kind of bent. My left hand isn't like that because I used to curve it around a pencil but like my writing callus has gone down it's there's there isn't really one there anymore and Mm -hmm. i i think about that sometimes like kids don't get writing calluses anymore Mm. you get carpal tunnel from typing right so but these are like these physical changes that the technology that we use has on our bodies yeah and and those are like very small instances it's like but but they're the same kind of thing of what Cronenberg's saying here is that it it slowly introduces itself into our lives there's a big change anyone can resist you're like no i'm not gonna do that but little by little by little everybody like you're my 76 year old dad can facetime with me yeah you know i mean like that's like in his lifetime that blows his mind to think like we can do that now you know because he grew up watching buck rogers thinking that was no way that we'd ever do that you know and but i I think about too like how much has changed in my life and the the four and a half decades i've been on the planet it's wild right but then i think about like the students i work with who've been you know here half that time and it's accelerated by 10 for them, the stuff that they live through. And I'm like, holy cow, you know, I mean, we make the joke in the office, all the Gen Xers do this. I'm like, I'm glad I went to college when there weren't camera phones. Like, <laughs> yes, it wasn't, I like, was just talking about this. Right? See? It's, oh, it's, man, I don't need yeah. photographic <laughs> proof of some of the things I got up to. And not just photographic mm-hmm. proof, but, you know, digital images that can be copied and shared. Exactly. Yeah, that like in yeah. the blink of an eye. I know. And, ooh, but but, but thinking about that and sort of the natural <laughs> extension of that is you you can see and just speaking specifically from the American point of view, like our sensibilities about things have definitely changed since there's been a more proliferation of the sharing of lots of different intimate details and and things like that. We talk about things 
in public and on television, you know, whatever that we would never talk about before. Lucy and Ricky slept in separate beds, you know, in yeah. the fifties. And, uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's a thing. And I think about that. And I think what Cronenberg's next extension of that in this movie, at least is like, we'll get to a point where it's even beyond that now, where it's just, it's just part of what we do to the point that, we, nobody thinks anything about it. It's just part of your life. Like you'll have a little ring. that's a camera, you know, because we pretty well have that now anyway, you know, and I, I do yeah. love the fact that like when they're they're when they're exploring, um, Saul in the government uh, office and you know, she's filming it and uh, Kristen Stewart freaks out like, you're not allowed to film in here. I'm like, of course. Yes. Yeah, nobody wants to see you. You're the government <laughs> don't like know how anything works, which is why you're on the third floor of a building. Nobody cares about building that no one is ever going to notice is even there. Right. Well, and, but I think that's the statement of that is like, at some point it'll get to the point where everybody's just like, whatever. And you just yeah. let them sit over there. Cause you don't care. Cause you don't need them anymore. And that's the, and, Truly, you need that kind of oversight when you have lots of people, right? Well, what do yeah. we not have? We don't have a lot of people in this movie anymore. Like, it's <laughs> a pretty small group of folks. Like the fact that there's a detective unit, I'm like, for what? <laughs> there's no traffic. There's there seems to be no crime except the one mom <laughs> who turned herself in, and then like, um, Saul even is when he's talking to Luna, um, is is really interrogating her like why did you turn yourself in they didn't have a body Jirna. you you could have got away with it she's like because i did it you know and it's like well, all right i appreciate okay. the honesty i'm sure they were like okay anybody got a book what do we do with somebody that says they did it i was like really you think about it. but i'm thinking about that and that's what this movie does is it allows you to sort of just follow those rabbit trails to like yeah what is this world like you know well, and this is a great time yeah. to talk about detective cope and the yeah. new vice squad. Yeah. You were it's named really that because good. it's it's sexier. It sells. Yes. I'm, I'm, like, I'm like, Paul Verhoeven's RoboCop dreams have come true. <laughs> the cops are total marketing sellouts. <laughs> well, and, and, you know, this this is one of the things when when it's revealed that Saul is cooperating mm-hmm. with Detective Cope on this investigation and that he's an informant. Yeah, you know, like an, he's a, a kind of undercover. He's he's acting as an informant. And my first thought was, is there some bigger crime we're not aware of yet? Like, yeah. what what exactly are we investigating here? And you know, we we come to find out about this whole movement that Lang has going with this whole eating plastic thing, but it's. You know, the the bigger issue at hand here is this suppressing. It's it's keeping an eye on how this human evolution is occurring mm-hmm. and keeping an eye on the people that are trying to push it artificially to go faster. But it's it's this really I mean, this is this is how funny human beings are, right? We're mm-hmm. highly adaptable. We uh, we wouldn't still be on this planet if we if we couldn't adapt, you know. Right. We do highly adaptable, but we're also extremely resistant. <laughs> right. To changing anything. Yes. It's being humans weird, 
for reasons. It is. It really is, though. But I, th- I, th- I think you're on it, though, because I think that's what they're they're saying is that there will always, or what Cronenberg's saying here is that there will always be a group of people, and in this case, they're the law enforcement people, who are going to we're going to keep order even if the standard no longer applies. Because we just have to slowly let people ease themselves into this. Because if we all of a sudden we roll out this boy that's got this plastic eating stomach, we can't, we can't, we're not going to be able to handle that. Like people, people will not do that. Because I go back to something Tommy Lee Jones says in the first Men in Black movie. He's like, a person is reasonable. People are stupid and scared, (laughs) you know, you do bad things. And he's right. He's exactly right. If you can have one-on-one conversations with people, you can get into some really deep and, you know, um, controversial things. I mean, I, I, I think about this with some of my, my colleagues and friends at work and things, and we, we see differently on, on different issues. But when we have one-on-one conversations about it, it's always incredibly good discourse. I learn something, they learn something. And I'm like, yeah, because when we're not in a class and somebody's yelling it at me, I I feel like I react better to it or vice versa. If they're in some place and somebody's saying something, they're like, what are you talking about? Versus we're sitting down having a conversation and we're explaining it to each other. And I think that's what Cope is trying to say is this whole time is that you got to kind of keep this somewhat contained. But my question is contained against what, bud? Because there's nobody here. (laughs) What are you trying to preserve? But I I feel like that's, again, to my big metaphor, I'll get to soon. I've teased it for an hour and a half now, but that there's always a standard somebody's going to try to hold us to, even when the standard doesn't matter anymore. Yes. You know, it says there's always going to be someone that says, like, we're just not ready yet. We're not ready yet. And it's, um, I don't know. I I don't know this act. For the sake of comfort. Right, right, and I don't know this actor from anything. He's 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 from Guinea, I do believe. But it, what a neat performance! Because yeah. I, I'm talking about somebody who clearly did not get what was happening here, but just decided, well, I'm just going to play this as straight as I can, and it's it's striking. Like his, he's never too far up he's never too far down he does that whole bit about the lump on his side and you know it's like am i evolving or whatever they're like no you should probably just get that looked at you know <laughs> and but i like him i, I got i got a kick out of cope and i i wanted to know more about him um and then everything and and i even wonder i'm like you know he says how oh, i had timlin on the inside or whatever i'm like i kind of feel like he may not be telling us the entire truth there i almost feel like she probably directs him and he's just making himself feel bigger than he really is oh interesting this is how i took it i was i yeah. mean i i went i went with like kristen stewart's the mastermind evil behind all of this anyway <laughs> and i mean this, this is sort of where i went with this <laughs> yeah detective cope is great he's and he very much is in in the tradition of those old noir detectives. Yes. I've been watching a lot of that recently. A little world weary, a little jaded, a little, I've seen it all. Nothing, Mm -hmm. nothing you're going to say is going to shock me. Right. But, but cope, there's something about him. That's, he's also not like, he's not brooding. Mm -mm. You know, he's, and he he has a little sarcasm and he has a sense of humor but you can also tell that he's you know he's kind of seen it all he's not he's not phased yeah exactly he's just sort of he's just kind of moving forward he's just sort of like okay sure you know and he's just he just he, he is 
executing a set of commands. Yes. You can see. And it's that's what's so neat to watch him do because we we dropped him a minute ago, but we gotta talk about our two uh biomechanics as oh, the yeah. as they were. Danny and Burst, who I, I I assume they're a couple. I don't know. Maybe they're not. Nobody seems to be like excited about seeing each other naked anymore. So maybe they were just screwing around, you know, just to mess around. But I kind of took that they were, you know, together because they seem like they go together. Uh, but they're like little uh, thing one, thing two, hitmen yeah. things, you know. Like, I mean, that's really. I was like, wow, this is. I mean, this, talk about. I didn't expect. I knew there was something sinister about them because they work again. They work for the big faceless tech. I'm like these these people work for Meta. Like that's obviously what happens, right? So they or they you know they they work for Twitter or something like that, and they're they're policing they're. They're almost the police that don't work for the police in a way. Yeah. You know? Well, and think about this. You know, they're, this technology has like biofeedback and it's, and it's mm -hmm. programmed, we find out, because they have to do a tune-up on Saul's bed because mm -hmm. the calibration's off, because of the hormone levels, because of these new organs that he's growing. And all that to say this technology is getting all this very personal <laughs> intimate data about the inner workings of a person's body, about right. their hormone levels, about their brain waves, who knows what else. And so these techs, they got, they got their hands all in there on all of this information. And so of course, like, yeah, I'm suspicious. Anyone who's got that kind of access <laughs> to that mm -hmm. much information, like, hmm. They're the what thing you, Edward Snowden warned us all about. Yeah. Like, really? They, they, I mean, they, they are. I mean, they really are. And then they, when they, when they execute, when they kill the, the one, we'll talk about the zipper guy in a minute. I'm curious why they killed him. I, I, I don't know. I wanted to see what you think. When they kill the Scott Speedman character, like you knew, like he had to die, obviously. Like, oh, yeah. Well, your whole jig is up. So you got to go. But the way they kill him, I felt like I jumped back to like scanners or video drone or something. Yeah. I was like, we are in 1982 with this effect, and I am here for it. Like, is that is a mannequin? We are drilling the bag of its head out. Like, I am <laughs> here for that. Like, I, it was yes. awesome. Uh, and what a what a horrendous way to kill somebody, too. <laughs> I mean, it was. I was kind of blown away by that. Can you imagine that you're just and the character's already distraught because he's just, you know, yeah. the shock of of this autopsy. But to just be sitting there in your feelings and then you hear drills turn on like right behind your ears because they're right oh, behind them. Great Foley work, too, because there's oh. this sound and I've only ever heard it in one other movie. In Saw 3, they drill into the skull of a character and you hear this like tap that yeah. only, it's like something that's only specific to a drill bit hitting a bone. And it just it just makes me crawl. And you hear that when they hit him in the back of the head. And I was like, Oh, I mean, it, I mean, it was the one time I really cringed. I was like, of all the things I've just seen. And that's what got me. But I mean, but it was great. Again, great sound makes a huge difference. Well, you know, Paul Stanley said, you, you go to a concert, you listen with your eyes and your ears. And when the two oh, things yeah. combine perfectly, you'll never forget it. And, yeah. The cool thing about those biomechanic characters too. And Caprice calls them playful. Yeah. And, and they are, and you, and you, 
you put in a great way, you know, thing one, thing two, that mischievous playfulness. Yeah. And it's like they're drilling this man's skull to kill him. And they, just the looks on their faces and just like their body language. They're just. Yeah. Very, they're just, like, yeah. Oh, just another day. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, and we'll find like as we realized earlier, they they killed another character that kind of gets two scenes, which are, and you you don't know what happened to him. You just see like it looks like he get shot in the head. Like what happened? And then you realize later, like oh, they drilled him too because he was part of he was doing things he wasn't supposed to do. And so it's it I don't know. It's very uh, very uh, uh, fun to watch them because again they're kind of comedy, but not in an outright funny way. Yeah. L, like they they're just so maliciously evil. You know, they're almost like the evil Christmas critters in South Park. Like, I know what we can do, y'all. Let's <laughs> cut their heads off and drink their blood and totally. worship Satan today, you know, or whatever. Like it's, it's just that sort of thing. And they just kind of skip I think they actually skip away from killing oh, yeah. Scott. They Steven. enjoy their work. Yeah, I mean they're they're playing with the biomechanical bed. They're talking about the different parts because because uh Caprice goes to see them to get some new parts for the bed or whatever, and she's talking to them. And they just sort of randomly just say, we're just going to strip down and jump in bed again. And they go, you, what do you think? You think we can be artists too? And she just cracks up at them like, you two are a trip. <laughs> you know. But <laughs> but you think about it too, and you're, you've nailed it. And, and I'm so glad you said it because it brought it back to memory. The way that they both like react. So they don't react to anything except all the data Saul's bed has on him. And yeah. you see them look at that like, oh, wow. Like he's a real trove. study. Right? Yeah. Like, oh, we're going to spend some time on this. Yeah, like you could tell that, that that's what really gets them excited. And I don't know. It, it was just neat because they're, you don't, I'm not sure entirely what role or whose side they're on in this. Or are they on their own side? Because that there's that big, again, they're, they work for the software company that we don't know yeah. anything about yeah. other than they manufacture this thing. And they obviously still work because they're updating the software. So unless, you know, Skynet decided instead of launching against this, oh, I'll just fix all your computer bugs. You know, <laughs> maybe it's self-aware <laughs> enough to do that. I don't know. <laughs> but, but really, I mean, it does, it does make that fun to watch them. We got to talk about the zipper guy and I don't know the character's name at all. I, I'm sure he's got one, but he, he invented this, device that can allow you to zip and unzip yourself for surgery yeah. at any moment. Yeah. And Saul goes to see him and has one installed. And we'll talk about how that plays out in a minute, but I didn't, I didn't entirely Dr. understand. Is that? Yeah, that's gotta be him. I didn't entirely understand what his role was, nor why he had to be killed other than if he was subverting the need to have the autopsy bed to access your organs, maybe somewhat like he had jumped too far ahead. Right. Well, so the whole idea of this pageant, mm -hmm. <laughs> assuming that they were actually planning on having this pageant and then the inner beauty pageant, something else, the inner yeah, grow a new organ and you'll win best new <laughs> organ. I'm, I'm just laughing at that. So. <laughs> but you know, something I thought about with, with the zipper, to your question, you know, the performances that Saul and Caprice do, they're artists. Mm -hmm. 
they it's something that they do that the audience comes to see that the audience cannot replicate what this doctor who installs this zipper uh an opening that then anyone who undergoes the one procedure then does it, it's there's no artistry in that anymore we get mm-hmm. that easy access convenience <laughs> you know yeah so there i i think there's something about that the the contrast of the the art of the surgery that's performed between Saul and Caprice and then this wham bam thank you ma'am open up a zipper reach in there and <laughs> <laughs> and you can just kind of do it yourself. Um, yeah. I think, too, I think the threat he poses, and this is, again, you and I have just seen this the one time in the theater today. Mm-hmm. In subsequent viewings, we might pick up more. But the thing I was thinking was, if everybody can open up and look inside, mm. you would start to see all of the anomalies, all of the different transformations how the evolution is happening and if the government and colluding factions want to suppress that knowledge you don't want everybody just being able to get a zipper installed and open up and see what's inside are you trying to tell me that there would be forces on earth that would try to keep information from people Pshaw. No, I'm I'm no, I'm following you exactly. I think you're right on. I think you're (laughs) dead on with all of that. But we gotta talk about the zipper. The only way I could say it is the zipper blowjob scene that happens in this movie. So (laughs) Saul gets one of these things and he comes back. Caprice has been out. This is when she's been out at the the life form where warehouse to see the the surgery beds or whatever because they're getting ready to convert it to because they're considering doing the autopsy on the boy and because they got to re- retrofit it because they turned it into a surgery table instead of an autopsy table and so she kind of tells him about that and he shows it to her and she's like so what what is this for like is this was are we, are we stopping what we do he's like no it's just you know just something different or whatever and when he opens it up and the way she just attacks him i was like oh i did not expect that to happen like, i was like oh well i did not know we were going there today and i don't i can only relate it to the this isn't really the way we do things but i got one for us to mess around with and eh, let's just see where it goes that's kind of what i think was happening there you know i mean that's not really our thing but i don't know you want to try it once sure and that's what happens <laughs> I mean, I don't know if there's any way to talk about this without sounding crass. Mm-hmm. So I'll do my best. But I've already said zipper blowjob. I mean, we're, yeah. we're there. So, you know, so and and there are scenes where there's sexual contact with an unnatural orifice in yeah. several other Cronenberg films. We've seen this. Yes wounds um you know <laughs> weird or the, the whole movie crash is you know, yeah yeah plenty of that but i i think you know the thing that strikes me you know her reaction again these are people that have 
they've experienced a lot together. Mm-hmm. But this new orifice, this this new opening that he has is something that is undiscovered yet mm-hmm. in this way. And, and it's, I mean, it's just the most human thing ever, right? Like, if, if there's some new way to do it, humans are going to try to do it that way. Exactly. There's, you know, yeah. we're always, we're always, we're always pushing to the experience something new variety some creative way and well it goes back to what you said earlier you get so extreme to a point that you have to just go even beyond anything you think could be because we we, we didn't say she unzips him and she basically licks his internal organs that's what's happening so that's so this is something they are she's in that space all the time but not like that and yeah. so that's why right. it's so new to them. But you, for a, that couple, for what they have done and what they do on a routine basis, yeah, you'd have to be that extreme to get any kind of pleasure out of it. And clearly, they both do. And it's like, wow, what a what a striking visual. Like again, I I did not expect that. And when I saw that, I was like, oh, okay. Like of all the things <laughs> I've witnessed today, that. I will never forget. <laughs> it's just one of those. Okay, I'm just. Mm, this one, I'm, I'm like, I'm glad I have someone I can talk to about this later. You oh, know? Yeah. <laughs> so. Well, and, and I wonder. I'll I'll run this by you. You know, in in scenes in something like Crash or Videodrome, in Rabbit and Shivers, you know, you'll have a scene and there's there's something sexual happening, but it's, you know, it's in that, that Cronenberg, there's some science fiction slant on it, some body transformation slant on it. And a lot of times in the past, those things were like, (sighs) it's even hard to put this into words. Again, that, that whole thing about, you know, clinical or cold where it's very much about like the body mechanics. Mm Mm-hmm the mechanics of this, you can fit this there. (laughs) Let's see how it fits. But in this, because of the relationship between Saul and Caprice, that scene is very tender. Like it's very Mm -hmm. loving. Yeah. It, It doesn't just feel like, like, ooh, let's stick this in here and see what happens. Right, yeah. It's not, it's not just, you know, let's, let's just have sex. Because we've seen them essentially do that with their, like, cutting party right, thing right. together, right? Because that, that's their way of being intimate at this point, right? And this, though, is beyond even that because it's new right. for both at the same time. You know, because yeah. being cut on is Saul's every day, right? Or we yeah, presume. regular. But this is not – and her – you see in his insides, it's not anything new, you know, but not like that. And yeah. weirder than that. And um, so it is, it is a, I, I dare say this, it's an incredibly tender and sweet moment and a really yeah. 
freaky way, but it, it in a Cronenberg way, it is like the, the most tender thing in the whole movie. Yeah, like like these are two people that <laughs> know each other inside and out. And <laughs> yeah, literally. Yeah. I mean, like they, they don't and they never say they love each other. They don't even call each other lovers. They just talk about like their partnership, like they're yes. so intertwined with each other that they they they'll never want to be without each other, but they don't have to say anything about it. Exactly. Well, is, you yeah. have to think about the level of trust. Oh, yeah. That yeah. goes into allowing another person to practice surgery on you. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. I mean, For someone to take a scalpel and cut you open, <laughs> like yeah. there, there's a trust that, that needs to be there. For that mm-hmm. partnership to work. Um, and yeah, in that scene, it's like you feel the trust between these two people. And so, yeah, it's just, it's, it's a really, there's something really touching about their relationship. It's what makes happen, it's what happens next with Caprice that makes it so interesting. Because after that is when Saul goes and meets the mother and gets the whole story about this is why, you know, I killed that lizard. And, you know, she, she goes into like, he had like this acid, you know, spit that would break down plastic. And I just knew he wasn't natural, you know, all this stuff. And while that's happening, Caprice is watching another performance. We, we didn't talk about the dancing ear man. There are other performance body <laughs> modification yes. artists. And like you see that one and everybody's like, ooh, and ah. And then Saul's sitting over the corner and somebody tells him like, it's not even real. Like none of the ears work except the two other ones. Like, what's the point? It's just sort of like, eh, you know, it's just a poser. It's not what you do. You know, it's somebody <laughs> propping him up. And I'm like, that's kind of funny. And then he's, but Caprice goes and sees this other lady who's gorgeous. She's striking, but she cuts her face, you know, and she's like, oh, it's a deeper place to be. And Caprice is all about, like, I, I wanted to do that too. And meet me in my hotel later. And when she comes out, she's got like little ridged horns all over her face. Yeah. She's got and, implants. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, wow. And I mean, I mean, it, and she wears them the rest of the movie. And I'm like, yeah. Oh, so it's like when well, you I, realize people do get implants. Oh, yeah, yeah, I've seen that. That's what it made me yeah. think of. I was like, I've seen okay. like the the input. Like, I mean, I'm like, it's like you and your your partner have this really great moment, and then you go to uh, you know Vegas on a conference, and you come back with a Mike Tyson face tattoo. You know, it's like, well, okay, we made some choices today, and I didn't know that was going to happen. And that's essentially their conversation at the end of it. Is he? It's not like he's disappointed or upset about it. He's just sort of generally surprised she went through with it. Yeah. Cause it's yeah. like, I didn't know you were interested in any of that, you know? And especially the way she reacted to when he cut her earlier, you know, it's like, Oh, you like voluntarily signed up for it. So I don't know. I, I wanted to get what your take of is why she seemed to be so enamored with that. <sighs> that's, that's a great question. And it's, Again, I mean, I can't say this enough. I can't wait to rewatch this and pick mm-hmm. up on all the little subtleties because I, I can project, or I can, I can try to read between the lines, kind of with my the limitations of my one viewing. Uh, I can't wait to really dig into this in subsequent viewings. But I, I wonder, I wonder if if part of it isn't you know, as the surgeon, 
when you get the one side of an experience, when she's the one doing the cutting on another person, she has kind of one, one perspective and one type of experience. And it's also important to note they use a machine. Yeah. She's not hand on the scalpel. No. She's working this little controller that looks like a toad. And <laughs> right. Yeah, a little, little, little spongy thing. Yeah. Yeah. And it's the, re- you know, it's the remote that controls the Sark machine. So she's not even hands on the scalpel. Um, but it is still, you know, a very intimate thing that they do with her as the surgeon, even through the use of a machine. But I think, you know, as she's now had the experience of being cut herself by accident at first, and then, you know, her being interested in, in exploring that further. And then she goes to this performance and she sees this really stunningly beautiful woman who's, who's being cut with a scalpel by a person by hand. And they're like, how intimate that is that someone's in her face making the cuts and then not only just making the cuts, but like using an instrument to kind of pry it open. And, and I wonder if part of it isn't that once you've, you've kind of mastered the one side of an experience that the interest that develops to experience it from the other sides. I, I think the allure you hit of that. Yeah. I think you've really hit on a thing though, is that their performance is mechanical mm-hmm. and it's done by a machine. It's, it's a, it's science in a lot of ways. Right. Yeah. Whereas that artist it's, she's letting somebody actually cut her. She's cutting herself, you know, and, I want to feel that. I want to do that thing, you know, because it's so different than anything else she would have, you know, have ever experienced. I, I, I think you're on to something there that this is like another level for her to get into that type of activity, you know, and she, she wants to try it, even though I love the, the old way that we do it. It's fine. That's great. You know, I'm not looking for anything new. I just wanted to try this, you know, and that's why I say like, I initially thought I'm like, Oh, he kind of disapproves of this. And then I realized a little later, I was like, no, I don't think he does. I think he's just genuinely surprised she did it. Right. But it's not like he's against the idea, you know? No, no, I, I I didn't get the sense that he was angry or jealous or upset. No, it was more of a, a little bit of like a surprise, like, Oh, just, just like you would if you have a long-term partner that comes home and tells you they've developed this new interest or they tried this new thing that they never tried before. Yeah. You'd be a little like, Oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, mean, I've been married 17 years. If, if my wife came home one day and decided like, okay, I'm just going to like reverse Mohawk my whole hair. I'd be like, well, okay. Like, uh, sure. Sure. But, why? You know, like I just, I would be curious, you know, cause I'm like, well, yeah. I, I knew you and I didn't know you would ever do that. But it just to show you that no matter how intimate you are with someone, we are our own agency and creatures and we have our own yes. stuff. And I think that's what Cronenberg is saying. It, it's just that in the context of this movie and this relationship is as close as these people are. We've just shown them in the most close thing we can possibly dream up for. She crawled inside of him for goodness sakes, you know, 
even then there's things about her he can never know and touch and th- there's obviously stuff about him too she'll never you know know and touch and yeah. it's just sort of like no matter what no matter how close you are to somebody there's always something that's yours and yours only yeah and, I don't well, know, like, it, I, it, it, yeah we do our independence a, you know most definitely and there's you know we're talking micro level something mm-hmm. that happens but you know within one person and in their relationship with another person directly but then you also think about like on the larger scale on the macro that that human curiosity mm. You know, and and there's a lot of that here. We have individual characters that are really curious to have a new experience. Yeah. And then you have this human evolution, which is happening. And and you have so it's it's kind of like the whole revolution counter revolution. Then you have detective cope and this new vice agency and whatever larger conspiracy they're a part of this trying to hold this back. But you know, human beings, we want the next thing, the new thing. We want more. We want faster. We want more convenient. There's always, we're always pushing. And, and that happens on that individual level, but it also happens as a species. And I think globally too, the thing that's happening is that, and, and I think we see this with, with Saul in the end coming to grips with, you know, what he's changing into is that the evolution, like there's a group that really wants it to move forward. So they're going to go through extreme measures to make sure they can handle it first. Right. So they're the first adopters, but they would look what they had to do to themselves to get to that point. You see all the right. scars on them, like the multiple surgeries and they're in hiding all the time. They're constantly moving. And I mean, the leader gets his head drilled out. I mean, so it's not exactly the safest place. <laughs> then you got the police that are trying to sort of maintain this. You got the registry that's trying to legislate it or own it or legitimize it, but in its very specific way. And then you got the artists that are just sort of, experiencing and letting everybody just sort of revel in it. Right. But the evolution is happening in spite of all of these people. Yes. Like nobody's in control of it like at all. And I think that's part of the message here too. This is like as versus we are to change, it is happening. It's already happened by the time you realize it. And it's, you, you can do a lot of things and we'd like to say like, yeah, you get on board, but no, you don't have to, you can just be left behind too. And I think that's what Cronenberg's saying. It's like, you don't have to get on board. It'll eventually just go by you. And maybe you're right in your small lifetime in the span of things. Yeah. It didn't matter that you weren't on board with it, you know, cause somebody else will. And I mean, it's a very true. It's, I mean, it, it, you can get real, you know, deep in, into this kind of thing and, and thinking about it, but like, it's a real true statement. Like, <clears throat> people will always remember you in some way when you die, as long as there are people still connected to you. But once you die, like it's a true thing, like a month after you die, people stop talking about you. Like they, Oh yeah. Like the closest person to you, if they're cognizant of it, will realize I didn't think about that person all day. Like I, my mother died almost 10 years ago and I, I will sometimes catch myself and go like, that's the first time I've thought about her in a week. You know, or something like sure. I, well, when I went and saw Top Gun, they had the Elvis um, uh, movie, the Boz Lerman movie. My mom was a huge Elvis person. And it, I realized like, oh, mom, I got a kick out of that. And I thought that's the first time I thought about her probably all week. 
And I'm like, oh, that's weird, but it is true. It's just sure. life is always moving forward, whether you are or not. And that's that's what's neat about all this stuff. And it does that last scene, and it's incredible because it, it Caprice really wants to direct it. She wants to run that show. So you, I don't want you there. You just sit in the back and all this because he's gonna he was gonna do the autopsy while she talked, which is what usually happened, and. She, She's like, nope, I'm going to do this whole thing. So she does the autopsy on the boy. And what they find is, and I, is he stuffed with Saul's organs that like they've collected at the agency or just somebody's? Did they always tattoo him? I'm not, I'm not sure. Yeah. I I noticed they were all marked. Other, or if, or if, like, is Saul the only one who gets his organs tattooed? I don't think so. I think that's part of the thing, right? Maybe that's part of the registry is that they stamp them in some way. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, but when they start doing that, I was like, oh, that was, I mean, I expected it like it, he's going to be like half mechanical. It's Pinocchio, you know, or whatever. Like sort of I thought we were sure. going to get. And it's like, oh, oh no. And then again, there's a great shot of just Kristen Stewart's face just looking semi-sinister which is sort of like her second default emotion <laughs> on, her, on her face and i'm like oh i'm really somebody needs to cast her as a bond villain sometime in her life by the way can we get that done before, you know, oh, before she is, is done acting so i i would <laughs> i would so be be there for that or maybe just a henchman she could be a good eye job i don't care but but she's got such a good like intense look when she wants to have it and she does that and then when it's revealed later that like Oh, she was behind this and she was watching her handiwork and like her, her compadre, like is so disgusted. He just walks off and, and, you know, Oh, I can't believe they're doing this to this poor child or whatever. And she's sitting there going like, already did it. You know, I'm like, <laughs> wow, that's pretty, Done deal. <laughs> it's pretty cold. I mean, but, it, but it's, it's neat to see. And then Saul's like, Hey, it would have been good to know that this was all going on, you know, cause I'm the double agent here and I didn't know what was happening, but that's always fun when your main character, I mean, I'll go back to bond again. It's fun in some of the bond movies where he doesn't really understand how it resolves. He's just there to pull the trigger at the end. Right. Uh, but he doesn't really do anything, you know, to help any of it. It's, it's fun. <laughs> and uh, I, I, I like that with that last conversation he has with cope there. Yeah. I mean, and that's, that's one of those those beautiful things about these types of stories, whether it be, you know, some kind of crime detective thing or or spy craft. Like people people get told only so much that they need to know, that need to know basis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and there's especially when you have some some kind of elaborate scheme or conspiracy, there's too many moving parts for everybody to be totally read in on every detail. Nah, you just need them to play their part. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the way that you get them to play their part is by not telling them everything. And so, you know, would, would he, you know, how would it have changed if they had told him ahead of time? You know? Yeah. I don't know. Well, you but you wonder if he would have, yeah. Would he have, would he have stopped it? You know? Right. If, if you, I mean, they talk about that during the the Manhattan Project when we were working on the bomb, you know, in Oak Ridge, Tennessee, and stuff. That the the general that was in charge of that and really came up with the idea of like 
compartmentalization. You need to know enough to do your job and nothing else. And it doesn't matter what somebody else does the next you know building over. That's not your building. You work in your building. And you know, it didn't matter what these other people do. So half the people never even knew what they were working on. Sure. You know, and that's I mean, but there's there's a safety measure in that too. And you can see why the detective and the new vice squad would want to do that. It's like, yeah, you can't let everybody know what was happening because I mean, not if you want to get away with it, not if you want to pull right, it off. Right, exactly. <laughs> We've got it too. I mean, Saul is an artist, right? Yeah. And artists by nature are freewheeling a little bit. They they're gonna they're gonna go off the reservation and can't let that happen. So uh, the last scene, where, and I want to ask you what happened because when when I saw it walking out of the theater, I thought he ate the plastic and died. Wow. And then I was like, no, I don't think he did. I think he. I think the tear is like part gratification of like, finally I can eat something without struggling. And yeah. Oh, I guess I've evolved now, you know, and all that. I, it, which way did you read it? I'm curious. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's how I read it. I, I read it as, you know, cause we've throughout the film, we've seen him trying to eat <laughs> several times mm-hmm. and he's, he's always in that, 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 <laughs> that chair that awful chair that's like moving him around and he's trying to get this slop. Looks like baby food. Yeah. Ugh. Mash of who knows what. Yeah. And you can and he's just struggling to get anything down. And and the whole film, even when he's not battling to try to get some food down, you know, that the clearing of his throat, the sound in his throat, like you can tell he's he's got pain and difficulty swallowing and i mean that's miserable mm-hmm. and i in that last moment the last ditch effort is to try and eat this this plastic bar which which i thought looked a lot like a purple version of soylent green <laughs> yes exactly yes it looks, it looks like a little like like a little puck almost but yeah. like in a candy bar form when he, I interpreted him eating that, and then it goes to like a black and white image, and it's very tight on his face, and the look, it looks like relief to me. It looks like, and he's got that one solitary little tear. It looks like tears of joy to me. Okay. Like yeah. the relief of finally to be able to eat something. And when he, when he takes that first bite before they they move in for that tight shot on his face, there's something that Vigo does with his shoulders. There's kind of like this drop, like like his whole body just kind of relaxes because he's not fighting anymore. Yeah, he's finally given in to to what is. Well, and we see what he did the night before, too. He didn't sleep in his bio bed. He slept Mm -hmm. on the floor. So he's in incredible pain all night. And honestly, like, they have some sort of shared dream at that moment, too, which is also just sort of reconnecting them. But the way the scene starts to play out and the the sounds and stuff, I'm like, oh, Saul and Caprice decided to try the old sex. You know, it's the way it sounded. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I I was like, I, I figured that's where this would go. And I was like, oh, no, no, no. 
something else is going on here. And then when you realize like, she was like, Oh, you're in a lot of pain. I'm sorry. You know? And he was like, I was dreaming this and you were there. Well, who was doing this? Was I, I was there too. And they, they realized they had the same dream. And it's like, Oh man, these people are like beyond connected and they share like this really intimate. Uh, it's, it's a redoing of the upside down original Spider-Man kiss from the Sam Raimi movie, <laughs> yeah. but it's, it's the first time you've seen them do something like that. And it, but it's the like the most simple like human thing that we've seen yeah. them do beyond the exotic, and it's like oh they have completely reconnected at this point after all yeah. of this, and so I think that was important because then it does when his shoulders drop like that you realize like oh he doesn't have to fight anymore and he's with the one person on earth he really trusts and yeah. it's I don't know it's it's a powerful statement at the end there too so yeah I think so. Um, so we've walked through the whole movie. I've got to hear now. Like that's what happens in the movie. What <laughs> the heck is all that about? Cause I have my theory, but I want to hear yours. <laughs> Again, I, I was picking up on a lot of this, you know, our relationship with technology and, and how the technology changes us. That was a big thing for me here. I, I thought, the the whole movement to eat the plastics was really interesting because then we also bring in this commentary about we're dealing with the evolution of the people. We're also dealing with what the people have done to the ecosystem, to the planet they live on. Right. And 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 how Yes, we're evolving, but also this need like, well, we we got a lot further to go if we want <laughs> if we want to continue our existence. Mm-hmm. Um, because we've pushed and pushed and pushed, and we've almost pushed ourselves <laughs> into us into an untenable situation where we we can't continue to exist here anymore. Mm-hmm. I think that's an interesting thing. I think you know, the themes about art that come through here about that um and it's not even fully formed for me yet. like i feel like i need to watch this another like five times <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> but there, there's something in here about the creative process and how we work things out through art and about the vulnerability of opening yourself up through performance or through art um in in this film in a very literal way mm-hmm Um, but yeah, I think too, something that I also think is, is maybe getting played with here too. I don't think it's a coincidence that the Saul character, I mean, Vigo's a good looking man, but he's a middle-aged man Mm -hmm. and he's clearly a middle-aged man. He looks good, but he's clearly a middle-aged man. You it's know, been a while since Texas Chainsaw yeah, Three he's a or whatever. Fox. Vigo <laughs> is a silver fox. But I, I, there's something here too about, and this is something that Cronenberg has explored elsewhere. But I, the tone of it, I think in in this instance is really interesting. Like, the Vigo character is is clearly older than Caprice and. Clearly older than all of these other characters he's interacting with. And he's been fighting this transformation for so long. And and he's dealing with 
what he perceives as illness, you know, the growing of these organs is like an illness that they keep, you know, going in and extracting, doing these invasive procedures to extract this, this illness that he has, this disease, um, only to come to accept that like, no, this is what my body is becoming. And so I, I feel like there's something about age there too, mm-hmm. about, you know, we can fight <laughs> the inevitable things that our body is, is, is becoming. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and fighting that is, is painful. And we can see these changes as like a curse or a malady or, or something that's wrong, or we can accept that, that we're just becoming more or different or there's something about that, that I was picking up here that resonated for me. No, that last part in particular, I, I definitely clocked into as somebody who I, I, I used to run a lot when I was in my twenties and thirties and then I quit for seven years and I picked it back up a year ago and, you know, I lost weight, got in shape, ran lots of ridiculous distances. I have no idea why I did, but now like it is my addiction. It really is. Mm. Like if I go more than a day or so without just a little something, like a little jog, I'm like, I'm, I, feel, I, I, need, I need to run. I need to run. Like I, I, you know, I, today, I mean, I didn't need to run, but I needed to run. So like I, so I get it, but I also realize I can't do like there's, I have friends in the running community and they run like consecutive days. They run like 2000 consecutive days. I'm like, awesome for you. About <laughs> six is all I got. And then it's like, mm, my knees and my back go, hold on. Hoss. A break. You're, you're not 35. So <laughs> you're not 25. <laughs> it's you, the miles add up. So, but, it, but I, I resonated with that. I, I walked out of this. Very similar to kind of what I think Nolan did with Inception and what that was all about. I feel like this is Cronenberg taking filmmaking and this is all a metaphor for how all that, the whole apparatus works. Mm. So just follow me here because, again, this is just the outline of the paper. I'd need to watch it a few more times to get it fully done. So Viggo Mortensen is the the golden age actor you know, or director, the filmmaker, the, the, they do it the you know, the, the way and everything they do is gold, you know, people love it. And there's always someone to, to, you know, to appreciate it. There's always an audience for it, no matter how little it is, but times is changing. Right. And so Caprice is that loyal fan base that, maybe even is as so loyal that they went into the business to be a part of it. And so they're the avatar for it, but they're also kind of curious about all this streaming and all these Twitch people and TikTokers that make millions of dollars. And they're kind of allured to that, you know, and Kristen Stewart outside of her double agency, Timlin is the TikTok generation. I appreciate this. And when they really get you, you show, show a kid like a really classic movie, you get them to watch it. And just watch them get blown away by, you know, go watch Double Indemnity with somebody that's like 18. And because right. I, I did this and they were like, holy cow, that was such an experience. Like they get so romantic about it, but they, they mostly consume it on a five and a half inch screen, right? Sure. That's their life, right? And, and 
what's the knock on it is that the social awkwardness, right? They just they don't know how to communicate with anybody. But they probably got a lot more going on than we really know, too. So don't take them for granted. Yeah. That's well, at least what Cronenberg's saying. Is. They're communicating. Yeah. Just not the way we do. Differently yeah. than how we exactly. think about it. Exactly. And then you got all the other players. So you have the registry, which I'd say is the academy, all right, of motion pictures. Like, <laughs> we're going to be relevant, darn it. Don't look behind how we do things. <laughs> you know, like, I think that's what they are. Is we'll throw that- you a new category. Exactly. Yes. We'll, we'll, we'll let you have 10, 10 people nominated, right? Like there's that. So it's, and, and you see the, you see the way solid goes with him. It's like, okay, I'll play along, you know, or whatever, but I'm, I really don't need you anymore because I've always got my loyals and I have other avenues to get this out, but you know, that there's that. And then you've got, uh, the, the character that's the, the, the making all the plastics and everything like that and, and laying and sort of what he's doing is people that say it's, I think it's like the modern studio producers. Like, well, you, you say you hate all the superhero content audience, but you eat it up by the billions. So you know what? We're just going to, this all you're going to get anymore. We're just going to make it for you. Just, I mean, you, it'll be okay. You'll get there. You'll get there. And, and we, look, look, the original fan of this is here. It's really not, you know, like, well, we're not quite there yet. There's still room for all of it. Maybe we shouldn't drill them in the back of the head. I'm not saying we do that, but I think that's who that is. It's sort of the modern producers who don't want to fund any of this. And then you got the old producers, which I think the cops are the old studio that's still hanging on. Like mm. yeah, we had, to, we had to get a sexier name to get more money for this. Right, and I think right. Cronenberg's going like, there's a reason this took me 20 years to get it funded guys. <laughs> and there's like 12 production companies on this because it's what you have to do these days. But the cops would of course, mm, lend themselves out to be in bed with a lot of other people, a lot of other agents to get it done. Right. Cause that's what right. the studio does these days. Right. That's what I think is going on. I think this whole thing is like a, this is like modern it. cinema kids. This, this is like where we it. are. Well, this, this is what I love about David Cronenberg. Yes. This right here. Mm-hmm. That. It's so much fun to just to take in the film, but then to analyze it and think about mm-hmm. it and and theorize and and look at the symbolism. I just love that. I love yeah, it. and that, I mean, you can't even boil it back to. I think Vigo could just be like the actor, you know, like mm. just the the institution mm. of an of an actor, you know that. Needs to evolve. I need to do that. I mean, if you're an actor nowadays, you, you got to be on social media. You got to have all this. Even if you got a team of people yeah. to do it for you, you got to have some presence in that world because nobody, well, Tom Cruise famously talking about this, that like he didn't really do that kind of stuff, but he figured out how to get a team to do it because Top Gun Maverick, there's a generation of people that have no idea what the hell Top Gun is. Like they, they know it's a joke from yeah. a Tarantino movie. They don't, they don't know what, that movie so he had to resell it to the world and obviously it worked because there's not that many old people in the world to go watch it that much so <laughs> so i mean really I've, I've seen the box office so but i i get that and like vigo could the the, the 
a saw character is the old actor. Like I'm, I'm going to hold to my principles. I'm, I'm giving you everything I've got, but every now and then it means I have to take, you know, I have to put the zipper in. Well, that's Marty dropping the Irishman on Netflix. All right, fine. <laughs> <laughs> that's how we're going to have to do it. Fine. <laughs> Which I, I mean, still haven't seen by the way. Oh, you didn't, you didn't check that out. I, I, I recommend doing it the way that I've seen it broken down on the internet where you watch like each hour is like an episode. Cause okay. I watched it over, over like three days doing that. And it made it, I wasn't blown away by the four hours of my life. Can I really watch something like that? And watching it like that, I actually processed it better. I think as a side note, there, there's this funny thing. There's this, there's this funny thing about again, like how we perceive things. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> you know, like back in the day I had no problem getting like a double VHS and like, yes, four hours. That's fine. Like <laughs> I would yeah. watch four hour movies. I watched a lot of four hour movies in my mm-hmm. life. Uh, but something about when something is streaming and I see that timestamp and I'm like, Ooh, I don't know. <laughs> right. Yeah, I know. I like there, there's some things like I, I always know and I have to think about like, okay, do I really want to commit the time to this right now to watch this? Like I want right. to watch this, but do I really have the brain power, the time to, or do I need to right. just watch something that's kind of, which I love because Netflix has a whole category of 90 minute movies. <laughs> And I'm it's like, beautiful. you know what? That's, that's about what I got time for right now. So I'm gonna <laughs> find one of those and we'll go with it. And and it's 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 why I like some of the the series of, and horror series I like because I know they kind of all run between 85 and 96 minutes. And I'm like, I can live with that. We yeah, can marathon that all spot. day. Yeah, four hours. I'm gonna think about that and watch Casino again. Oh man, I want to think about that. You know, so I'm seeing it a few times. Mm, piece of time, you know, which is fine. However you do it. But I think it could all be that. All of this I think is valid. And we, we've said that you know, plenty of times tonight. And this is definitely one that I, I think, you know, we'll, we'll do the wrap up here in a second, but I'm definitely going to see again and want to see if, how I react to it differently. And I'm to the point that I'm like, probably going to have to add this in the rotation of the collection when it, when it comes out, because this is just too, too good to not like get other people to watch and go yes. don't don't pay attention to all the, the people walking out of can and they're all freaking out and stuff like that i'm like eh, forget that noise just <laughs> like you can actually get past like i promise you you've seen grosser stuff on like tlc yes. shows you know i was like well, it's I you mean, know, yeah. this is the kind of person i am i saw i saw those headlines and that to me was a good sign Oh no! I, yeah, that's. I was like, oh, so we're gonna get a real Cronenberg movie. Oh, oh, I'm down now. That's what made me go. Because when I saw that trailer, I was like, the hell! And then I quick Google search. I'm like, oh, it's on now. I'm like, he's 79 and don't care no more. So he's, he's gonna so do good. it his way. So I, yeah, I was I was down too. So well, we're at the part of the podcast where it's time to give final thoughts, recommendations, and popcorn ratings. Obviously, larger the popcorn, the better the film. Carmelita, what are yours for Crimes of the Future? Oh. This is definitely a large popcorn. There's a squirt of butter on top. I I use Letterbox and I I log everything I watch. And when I was logging this this afternoon, I, I was kind of like, like how do I even? Because I I just know there's so much more. Mm-hmm as high as I am on this film right now today, first viewing, I think part of that is too, that I know that there's more and I can't wait to explore this again. I'm just, I'm so looking forward to it. 
I, I really enjoyed this. I think, I think this film is very true to Cronenberg's style and, and does harken back to earlier in his career in some of the, the themes and related imagery. But this is, to me, not a rehash. Mm-mm. This feels like like someone who has explored, has had an interest in certain ideas, and and years later is kind of checking in with us again on where he's at with this stuff now and what he has to say about it today, where he's at now. And I mean, I just love that. I think that's great. I'm going to join you in that large popcorn as well. And I'm almost on that line of like, it's so, I'm so, I know I'm going to visit this again so much. I, I should give it the extra, but I'm going to keep it at the large. Cause I feel like, okay, we've saved that extra large for like the bonafide stuff. Like, yes, we a year from now. I may change it, but there's first off for an hour and 47 minute movie, which it's about an hour and 40 minutes of actual stuff. Yeah. Even if you just go in and it's like, I just want to be weirded out for a little while. This movie can do that for you. If you want to go in and have this big existential head trip, this movie can do that for you. You know, and if you want to be somewhere in between on all that, this movie can do that for you. And that's a testament to Cronenberg's entire mantra was, I find talented actors and I don't care if they don't understand the damn script. I'm going to get them to give a performance and then we'll assemble the thing in the shop. Cause that's how I, that's what a filmmaker does. And I don't think there's enough emphasis sometimes put in to how important it is to put together a film and to, and to get all of what he got out of these people. Um, it's a tremendous watch. And for anything, my, again, if you're the least bit squeamish and you're like, I don't know if I can handle this, I promise you, you've seen a lot worse on Dr. Purple Popper. It's the same level. Like you, it, there, there might be two scenes where you get a little, but even if that's it, we're talking about maybe three or four minutes of runtime. You're going to get caught. If you let yourself go with it, you're going to get caught up in this whole story of what is happening here. And I do feel like the, the, the weakest part of it is the detective story. I don't understand the motivation there at all. And I don't think it's explained, but maybe that's on purpose. I don't know. Again, I need to see it yeah. again to really get yeah. that. Cope was the one part that I'm like, I really like this actor and I like the performances he's giving, but I don't know why he's there. You know, like everybody else, I can figure out why they're there. And oh, I didn't say that my in my entertainment metaphor, the twins are the tech overlords that are uh, suppressing information. So <laughs> at the behest of something much larger that we don't know. So maybe the studio for all we know. But but I mean, I really feel like this movie is the kind of thing that again, it, I was so happy that I knew we were recording this today because like I have somebody I can talk to about this. I'm going to introduce this to other people. I want to have conversations about this. As much the way I felt oh, about yeah. like Inception is after like I have to get other people to watch this so I can talk about it. Yeah, because I it's need just, everyone to go and see this. <laughs> yes, right. And I'm gonna I'm gonna say something. This is gonna this might be the strangest thing that I've connected tonight. This movie and Top Gun Maverick have nothing in common except something you mentioned too, is that they don't completely live off the nostalgia you have for everything that's happened before there's a healthy respect for all of it but there is 
you see something that has grown and has evolved and has changed that Maverick movie. That's a different character than it was the last time. And it's fun to see. And it's, it's a, everything else is completely superfluous. It's vroom, vroom, you know, stuff. And that was perfect. You know, at the time, this is much more heady, but it's also watching a filmmaker that in his 20th film is like, yep, I do this and I do this and I do all of that. And this is the thesis statement. So I'm not repeating it. I'm just building on my library. Yeah. And it's 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 incredible to, to see. And I'm glad we got to do it and talk about it here. So large popcorn for me. Again, I recommend it. And it's definitely one that I think get a group of people go watch this and, and walk out of it. Because I told you before we started, the young couple that walked out in front of me, the young ladies looked at the guy and said, what the F was that? And but but as I followed them out of the theater because we were just walking the same direction, I wasn't stalking them. They actually were having a conversation about it, and I I would venture to say if they were twenty, I might be on the high end. They were young people, yeah. but they got it, and they were. I was listening to them talk about it, and I was like, "This is really funny." And the thing I noticed was. I never saw their phones light up or anything like that. Like they were glued to this. And I'm like, that, that says something in itself. So I, I recommend it strong. I don't know how this is going to do at the box office. This doesn't look like the kind of thing that's going to make a ton of money. It, it may in the first couple of weekends make its budget or whatever, but I think it might get out there. I don't know about award wise, if it'll last long enough to do that. Cause award season is always so weird. And yeah. again, the Academy's about like the registry of organs in this movie sometimes. So who knows, <laughs> but there's, there's something to be said for like, if people want to go back and go like, listen, dude's really doing some stuff in this. And Kristen Stewart's making some choices in this. Like I would, I would be happy if they, they got recognized for it, even if they just get praised for it, I think it's enough. And they've already gotten that, but yeah, this, this was an absolute uh, blast of a movie to watch. It was uh, so much more fun though, because I got to talk about it with you, Carmelita. So thank you again Ugh, for coming on I film mean, strip. And we're yeah. like, we're holding back here. Right. Yeah. Like, like yeah, we we could do like a follow up show of this Whatever. in two months. Okay, okay, real quick, one thing, one mm-hmm. thing that I did not ask you earlier: the flies. Yeah, they're always you know, buzzing. The fly sounds. Mm-hmm. I've got this whole like, I would notice it, but you know, just seeing this one time, like I didn't pick up the patterns. So I'm like, it's nerding out on little things like that. I'm like, I need to watch this again. And I want to pay attention to when you hear the flies. Yeah. And what connects all of the different instances that you hear the flies. Uh, That's the kind of film this is. If you want to take it there. Yeah. Or you can just go see the dancing ear man. Exactly right. And go, what was that? <laughs> yeah, no, it, it works both ways. I I took those just as, to close the loop on it as just part again of we don't care about the kind of stuff that, you know, you don't leave stuff laying around because it'll attract flies. We don't care anymore. Yeah. You know, it's just part of that. So like we would, we would call it unclean, but to them, that's just like, yeah. when I hear know, flies, and, I think rot, I think trash. Right. Right. I think there's waste somewhere mm-hmm. attracting flies. Yeah. Yeah. But now that that group of people didn't care anymore about it. Yeah. So yeah, no. Again, we could like we could do three other shows it's on this. I think so. It's yeah, this, this is absolutely fascinating conversation. It's been so much fun to have you on. Tell folks again how they can follow you on the internet and all the cool places to catch up with you. Yeah. So filmstrip listeners can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd. Same handle for both at Carmelita says. 
And that's linked in the show description, folks. Follow that out. Again, Carmelita is on a lot of podcasts. We follow a lot of them. We're friends with them. And I'll just go ahead and tease it for folks. Carmelita is going to be on a couple more episodes coming up in the, the coming months. And uh, we've got a, a super fun one that uh, we're getting ready to record soon. It'll probably drop in you know early fall when it's all said and done. And then Carmelita is going to be part of a very special series I'm putting together. But hush, hush, not going to say any more about that one at this yeah, point. Yeah, mum's the word. Uh, yeah. Like, so You're looking forward should, to it. You don't know what it is yet, but you're looking forward to it. I, I know I know exactly. It's going to be a lot of fun. But again, I, I, do, I do tell folks, Carmelita is a great follow on Twitter. You need to read her letterbox. And if you're listening to, to Good Independent Film Podcast, I guarantee you're going to hear her voice if you haven't already out there. So again, thank you for coming on the show, Carmelita. It's been a lot of fun talking about this movie with you. Oh, thank you, Dave. It's, it's an honor. So much Always. fun talking about this with you. So happy to have a friend to process this movie with. Yes, exactly. Yes, it's so much fun to do. Folks, you can follow the show's social media at Filmstrip Pod, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Uh, if you go there and go to filmstrippodcast.com, you'll find the uh, links to all of our podcast feeds, Apple, Google, Spotify, we're all of them. You can also get to our letterbox page where we have an entire list of all of our reviews, 330 plus now at this point. So there's something in there for everybody. We promise you. Uh, so if you can leave us a positive review on your platform of choice, because it helps other people find the show, share us on your socials as well. Let us know what you thought. We appreciate the support for Carmelita Valdez McCoy. I'm Jay. Thank you for listening to film strip. Thank you for listening to Filmstrip. You can find more episodes on our website, filmstrippodcast.com. The Filmstrip theme music is produced and performed by Frozen Lake 121. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17.